Go Loud presents the Talking Bollocks podcast. Well, live episode 74 of the Talking Bollocks podcast brought to you by Go Loud, Roy Hart, Marconi House. It's me, COB. It's me, Tidy Flower. And today we're joined by. And it's me, Eddie Mullins. Eddie Mullins. So, for those of you that don't know who Eddie Mullins is, well, for, for those of you that do know who Eddie Mullins <laughs> is off the bat, yeah. <laughs> Eddie Mullins. Eddie, do you want to just give a, a, a short intro in, into so, who you are and what you do? So, I'm the governor of Mountjoy Prison. Right, that's and hard. he's not a copper. That's the that's the thing that we're trying to make clear. He's not a copper, and he's not a retired copper. He's a governor from Mountjoy. Currently, the governor of Mountjoy. Yeah. So he's actually on the clock. We need to get this <laughs> over and done with, so we can get back over. But before we get started, we want to do a bit of plugging. Walk away, pal. So this is our merch. Yeah, talking about looks t-shirt. Terence, what have you got there? You have the mug. I have a mug here. So we have this. Which camera are we middle? To, like, should we, 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 have a, we have a new studio set up as well. So yeah, yeah. So I don't even know where to be looking for it. Yeah, but this the mug. These are the t-shirts. So this t-shirt comes in black, yellow. Um, black and yellow. Pal. Black and yellow, yeah. <laughs> and then the hoodie as well. So the hoodie actually comes in black, yellow and grey, isn't it? We haven't got our hands on the grey one yet. So we might actually get a grey one for ourselves. But all this can be found on the link on our social media uh, sites. And it'll be in the link in the description of this video on YouTube as well. Mm-hmm. Um, get on, get you some merch. Make sure you wear it to the live show. And tag us on uh, Instagram when you get them as well. Yeah, so we'll give that a share. Uh, our next live show is June 19th. Sold out in less than an hour. Oh my God, did we not even talk about this? No. So it's not only this week? Yeah. What the... F- it's been yeah, a long so week. Vicar Street sold out. And so we were... That was only this week when we were saying that, Oh, we might have tickets on sale. We don't know whether they'll be sold out or not. Yeah. We're sold out last yeah, week. So yeah, so we're Vicar Street, yeah? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Get so. on, get your merch, <laughs> get down to Vicar Street, and we'll see you on the 19th. Bifty. Right? Great intro. Yeah, well, there we are. Right, jump straight at the singles then. Eddie, have you listened to an episode? I have. <laughs> you look disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, very good. Brilliant, yeah. Um, right, so do you know I'm the singles? Not, not exactly yeah, clear on them, but I'll, I'll, I'll learn as we go along. All right, yeah. all right, all right, cool. Right, so I was thinking, I was like a Wajarada or an Eater or a... Along them lines, yeah? So the ones from last week. Would you rather know how the world started or how the world will end? Oh, I think how the world ends. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I think, I know you're probably not going to change how it ends, but if you had an idea how it was going to end, you might could maybe prolong it a bit or, or do something different. Might, might, the Elon might Musk just, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. To be honest with you, it's not something I've thought about in great detail, but I'd yeah. say, yeah, how it would end. I'm inquisitive, so I like to know these things in advance, yeah. you know? See, I'm the same, but I'd rather, I'm more inquisitive about how it started. Because yeah, I, yeah. I think how it's going to end, it's going to be down to our I don't believe how it started. Maybe Adam and Eve, it started with Adam and Eve. Does anybody believe that anymore? Yeah, but how did Adam and Eve get here? Yeah. You know, like that? Yeah, it just goes back you and keep back going in back. your head, doesn't it? Until, yeah. yeah. Anyways, <laughs> we were late putting the singers up. These aren't the final results, but we'll give them anyways. 65% would rather know how it started, 35% would rather know how it ends, yeah? That's close enough. Is it? Yeah, two to one. Yeah. Uh, next one. Would you rather only be able to whisper a shell for the rest of your life, Eddie? 
Uh, well, I tell you, I'd have to, I'd have to shout because I'm half deaf. And if I could only whisper, I wouldn't hear. I have yeah, yeah, I'm half deaf. Yeah, yeah. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I think shout. Yeah, you're going yeah, to shout, yeah, yeah. you're obviously shout. I'll shout. Yeah, yeah, I can't whisper. Seventy-three percent of that I only whisper. Don't get that. Imagine being on a football match. Yeah. Come on, Liverpool. Yeah. <laughs> You know what I mean? Well, I suppose yeah. there's, there's benefits, isn't there? Yeah. Come on, Liverpool. Yeah. <laughs> That's for my sons, but... Who's your ref? Right, and the last one... Boy, I'm sure you haven't got one for this week. The last one... This was a third one from Anna Clifford. So, we had Anna Clifford on last week. She's a comedian. I was listening to her yesterday morning. I was oh, you know her, yeah? No, no, I was listening to your podcast. Oh, yeah, listen, sorry. Yeah. You were listening this morning. But we put her on yeah, the spot. Yeah. Uh, she came up with this one. Yeah. Right. Would you rather never listen to music again or never be able to sing again? You must like singing, do you? I do, yeah. I, I would, <laughs> no, will not. Yeah, I would have said sing, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you I like mean, a bit of karaoke now with a few gargles on you? Yeah, I do, yeah. Watch a karaoke. I'm, well, I'm actually more into ballads. I'm a ballads. I love ballads. Yeah. Oh, and I'm not singing like that. Oh, right, right, get about right. it. Not going to happen. Someone get him a blade. Because I can say, yeah. my daughter is at home saying, don't sing, don't yeah. sing, don't sing. <laughs> <laughs> we do well getting them in now. We want them to perform. Ah, so look. Uh, 8%. Oh, yeah, that's right. Jesus Christ, my heart. 8% of... 92% of that are never sing again. 8% of that are never listen to music again. So there's a lot of people that would. 8% of people are very confident that they can sing. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's where I was trying to get at there. Right, singers boxed off. Have you got one for this week? I don't. Eddie, have you got one? So would you believe it, lads? I was trying to think of a singer and I wasn't quite sure. Could you kind of clarify it there at the beginning? So back in the day when I was young, there was only a couple of snacks you could have, right? So it was, would you rather have Tato or King? We done it. Oh, you didn't? We done it. Because I heard you talking about greasy hands last week and I said, well, I didn't talk about the, the, the variety. So you on, did it. Early, early on this that was. That might have been episode one. Yeah, it could have been back then. Episode yeah. one, I tell anyway. So then yeah. I did, I had a backup one and the backup one was, would you, if you had a, if you had a choice, would you only shop online or in store? Jeez, this fella's more prepared than us. That's a great fucking thing. Online all day. Would you? Online all would day. You, yeah. All day. I'm in store because oh yeah. I'm an awkward old young in terms of hey yeah <laughs> when I put a medium top of me if it's perfect and then I could put another medium top of me and it's hanging on me yeah so I'm like slim fit small. regular fit if you look yeah. at the if you usually if you look at the label it usually tells you regular fit slim fit <laughs> all this kind of but it's a nuisance I don't know what size I am in tops do you know what I mean yeah. or bottoms are not like I just this. think it's so convenient shopping online these days I don't right. think I've ever bought. I've probably bought one or two, one or two things online, but generally it's. But you're old school. Yeah, yeah. Literally oh. two clicks of a button, and then two yeah. days of pair of runners at the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's as simple as that. But uh, do you know what always catches me out getting jeans online? Because you're like, that's my size. Yeah, thirty two, thirty two, and then you come, and you can't get them over your ass. <laughs> like, what's the story there? Like Nicki Minaj. Yeah, but like it's every time I get a pair of jeans, are different. So you have to get jeans in the shop. Everything else I get online. Can't remember the last time I went uptown and bought a tracksuit. Fall point. So I'm online, you're in, in store. I'm in store. I'm in store. Eddie's in, in store, store as well. Yeah. No, but a singer. Right. Oh, I haven't got any. Oh, we've no singers? No, that's why I was relying on letting me down here. Eddie's had a save in the show. Come here, should we have a singer somewhere? Have we something to talk about something there, will ya? Yeah, well, uh, what we done over the weekend, maybe. Oh, yeah, do that, like, yeah. Pretty much of a big deal. So, Eddie, what we done over the weekend was uh, we done a charity run for the Laura Lynn Foundation. So we raised, I think, just over 2,300 euro. Yeah, just under two and a half grand. In yeah. about two days, wow. which is just unbelievable. And Terrence has put a year. So what it was, was run four miles every four hours for 48 hours. So it's called uh, the David Goggins Challenge. David Goggins is a Marine, a US Marine. Head case, like he, he's, he's not worried, right? But he, he had the world pull-up record as well, most uh, pull-ups in 24 hours before. 
ultra marathon runner nuts like but that's that's who I come up with it. how did we grant Terence how did you find it I was lethal Oh, you got a good buzz out of it. Ah, it was unbelievable. Like yesterday, I was like, I never do That's one and done. Never, ever again. There's no point putting your body through that torch. And I woke up today and I'm actually not, now I'm sure, don't get me wrong. But I'm so not how, many, like, how many miles you run in total? 48 miles. 48 miles. Oh, just yeah. shit. It's good going, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, do you know what it is? It's not the running that's the hardest part, yeah. although. Yeah, it's the in-between. It's, 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 it's a lot of distance run. Like I think, yeah, it's 48 miles. That's seven. Nearly seven two marathons. Yeah, yeah, nearly, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, it's not that actual running, it's there. So, I think what you forget is when you run your four miles, that's eating into your four hours. Yeah. So, if that takes you 35 minutes, you have now three hours, whatever. Yeah. Then you get home, you're trying to wind down. Then as the runs are going on, you have to wind down any. You have to wind down and try and get a, a bit of sleep. And yeah. it's, that's what, it's the lack of sleep. I'd say in the 48 hours, I probably had just under three hours. I'd say I probably had three hours sleep, mm-hmm. which is not... And the mistake we're making is the later the run, so like as your runs are building up, you're getting more and more hungry, so you're eating loads and then not realising, oh, bollocks, if they're running about an hour. Yeah. So you're bloated running on that run then. Yeah. And what Very else? hard to run. When you're Very back. hard to run. But and do you run? Are you both runners? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we'd run frequent enough anyways. But the but thing what killed it as well was, if I was to go for a run today, I'd stretch before, I'd do the run, and I'd stretch after and make sure I'm grand, whereas when we were doing this... We're finishing the run, then just going in and sitting down. Yeah. And then you're getting up, your legs are heavy and they're sore, and you're like, bollocks. Yeah. See, see the last, say, four runs. Jesus Christ. Like, we're getting up off the chair to lift the gaff, and we're all like, oh, like you literally can't move, and you're forced probably minute or two of running. You're not running. Yeah. You're like, yeah, oh, I know. you're running with flip flops on. And, and you're stiff, and so you have a blade piano on your back, and you're just in bits. But then it's like the blood starts flowing, and you're like, oh, I'm grand, I'm grand. And then the same thing just keeps happening in yeah. the old body. But and was it outdoor running or was it all outdoor? outdoor, outdoor yeah. Yeah. All outdoor. All different. All different. Actually, we got a bang of an egg on one of the runs yeah. as well. Yeah. So I need to get into this. Well, it was Nicola Tallon, was it? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, correct. Uh, That's one of your episodes I listened to about yeah. <laughs> So... Well, we tell them what happened as well on Friday because there was a bit of a mix-up. Oh, yeah, so going into that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I was in London last week with Walk Eddie, right? And everyone who I flew over with, they were staying on until Saturday. So I was like, I actually have to fly home early. I'm doing this charity run. So I had my flight booked from five, for five o'clock. I got back into Dublin about six and we were going to start the runs at eight. Mm. So I was like, I'd load the time. So I checked at two o'clock and I seen that the flight was delayed and I was like, bollocks. So I said it to the boys. I was like, look, at worst comes to worst. I'll be home about half seven, close to eight, I'll, I'll be there. Then I got delayed by two hours. So then I was ringing them, I was like, you know what, if we start the first run at nine, we'll be all right. So then I get to the airport, right? And it comes up that the, the flight is at half eight. And I was like, right, lads, look, I'll get in at half nine, we start that run at half nine. Gets to half eight, right? I went to the jacks, came back out. There's a fella there from, I don't know, should I name the airline? I think I will, yeah, fuck it. There's a fella there from British Airways anyways. And he goes, uh, blah, blah, blah. I, I missed like the first half of the announcement. And then I'd come out, I was like, what's going on? He goes, so due to these foreseen circumstances, the flight is now cancelled and we're going to reschedule it for a flight tomorrow. But we have a flight going out now and there's 19 seats on it. And I was like, what? 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 What's that happening? So I went horning the people to see what's going on. But everyone's just hurling abuse at this fella. Everyone's like, this is a fucking disgrace. You should be ashamed of yourself and all. I was like, what is that happening? So I text the lads and I was like, Lads, you're not going to believe it, the flight's cancelled. And then I was like, there's actually murder here. So you thought I was messing. Because you wrote, there's murder here in the capital letters. And I was like, all right, drama queen. <laughs> so I said, I'll ring him, you know. 
Oh my God. There was like a riot. It was like a so, fucking riot. So he rang me and he's on a video call. So he's looking at me and I'm looking at everyone. So he's just looking at my reaction. But he can hear everything that's going on. You know when there's just loads of people yeah. screaming at once. Oh, jeez. Like the abuse. But because I walked out of the toilet and the toilet's beside the gate, everyone surged forward. So I got like pushed up to the front beside the fella. So everyone's showing abuse. I'm standing beside him. I was like, my heart just broke for this fella. Because, you know, because he's trying to be professional so he can't react. So everyone's like, you're a fucking disgrace. And he's like, yes, okay, so thanks. Like, you know, like that. And you're like, he's not the one who cancelled the flight. Like, mate, don't be shouting at him. So when he goes, uh, someone said, where's the, who's the other 19 people that's getting on the plane then? And he goes, my supervisor's on the way. Well, I tell you one thing, it wasn't her first rodeo. She knew what she was doing, yeah. <laughs> she walked up and the fella shouted at her and she's like, so please don't shout at me. I'm trying my best here. And I was like, oh, she knows. Yeah. She's had to come with the party. So she goes over then and she goes, uh, anyone with children gets priority. So, I was going to ask you, how did they pick the first 19? So this yeah. is what I was wondering. I was like, what's the story with this? I thought it was going to be like Father Ted, you know what I mean? <laughs> so no less than 200 words. Tell us what you deserve to see. So, uh, some a family with small children grew up and she goes, uh, any wheelchair users as well. So another el elderly fella grew up and he got on. There was 12 seats left in. And she goes, right, gold card members now. And everyone's like, oh, fuck this, blah, blah, blah. Because no one's really a gold card member. Some fella puts his hand up, he gets on the plane. And I was like, like what am I going to do here? And I was trying to count people around me and I was like, many seats there, blah, blah. It's about 40 people, 50 people around me. I was like, it's not a chance we're getting on this plane. But I'm going to chance my arm anyways. So, so the next uh, was podcast host, was it? Yeah, I, that's what he was saying. <laughs> so like, he's on the phone. He's on the phone. Tell them you have a podcast and all. I was like, fucking shut up, will you? So uh, he goes, any more gold card members? No, right, silver card members, right? A fella stands forward and he goes, it's me, but that's my wife there. She's not a gold card member. We need a oh, silver card member. We need to get home to our kids. And uh, another fella stepped forward. He goes, I'm silver card member. I'm happy for this woman to take my seat. And the supervisor was like, is everyone happy for this to happen? And everyone's like, yeah, go ahead. So they let that couple on the plane. So people are clicking now. Hang on, if you give them a sub story, you yeah. get on the plane. A woman goes, my son has autism. She goes, no problem, you get on the plane. And I was like, I'm not going to start digging down and be like, my nanny's doing, let me on the plane. People are coming forward, like, I'm missing a wedding, I'm missing this, I'm missing that. I was like, we're all missing something. Like, you know what I mean? We all have just as much reason to be on the plane. So people clicked. Say you have kids and you'll get on. Some woman goes, oh, you have kids and uh, I need to go home to mind them. Yeah, one turns around and goes, yeah, who's minding your kids now then? <laughs> I was like, she doesn't give a bollocks about your kids. <laughs> but uh, there was a fella there and he was like, yeah, I have a family holiday and if I don't get home now, I have to reschedule that whole holiday. And another person's crying and all. I'm at the flying from Australia, I need to get home. I was just like, yeah, I'm going. I'm happy happy to take the, tomorrow's flight. Fuck Terence and his run. <laughs> I went to get more up, up through all this blatant shit. So they bring us downstairs. He goes, okay, we have a flight out from Heathrow, which is two hours away, and we're going to put you up in a hotel, and you get the first flight out. It took us an hour just to book the next flight, and then uh, they fucked up the taxis as well. So we end up sharing a taxi with two randomers across the whole city of London, check into the hotel, yeah. It was 10 past 12. They get back up at half four to get a coach to come home. And then I landed into Dublin at, what, half eight? Mm. I was at Terence's door at 10 to 9, ready to run. And people are still texting me, giving me abuse. <laughs> people are like, Everyone's you bottled it. You, you need to do them, because you missed out on three runs, obviously. So it's supposed to be 8, 12, 4, 8, 12, 4, as it goes. And obviously, you couldn't do the 8, 12, 4. People are like, you can run in London. I literally couldn't leave the airport. I stood in the one spot for an hour at the book of flight. But then two hours. And they have to record the run, did you? 
So you could have said you ran in London, nobody would have known. In fairness, uh, yeah, I would have rather do the run. I would have yeah. rather done the runs, Eddie, than go through what I went through. Yeah. And I don't, I done I'm more I'm steps on Friday than you did. Because I knew I was doing the Goggins Doesn't challenge, so I didn't move off the chair all day. <laughs> I was like, I have to run for 48 hours at 8 p.m. I am not moving my feet from this position. Obviously, I'm going to do more steps. <laughs> I don't think there's a person in the country who didn't do more steps than me on Friday. But anyways, people are like, you bottled it and all. I was like... No, he, did, he didn't bottle it, but it is, it's, it's just funny because Calvin has a big ego. Yeah. And, uh, not a big ego, but like, if I do something and someone says, no, you didn't, I'm like, all right, I'm making her up then, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and that body, would it? What? That would body us. Yeah. But John Wells bothered me. It eats him up. John Wells bothered me. So they were on the phone and I had my headphones in. So he, they could hear people, but people couldn't hear them. And I was like, just as well, because the stuff they were shouting. <laughs> tell them you have a podcast, tell them this, tell them that and all. <laughs> but like, it really did become an episode of Father Ted. Because remember, a woman goes, I'm here since Sunday. I've no washing. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> she's no knickers. I shout at him. I go, she's no knickers. But no one else was laughing. And like, I'm trying to make jokes. No one else is laughing. I was like, oh, I don't this... think it was the right No, probably joke. not. <laughs> I was like, look at there's 19 seats, there's 50 odd people. We're not getting on the plane. Nah, bro, I'll, I'll give you a credit where it's you. The second you landed back down Dublin, he was at the door getting stripped in the car and fucking. I got changed in the car. I was in the Jay's Fluid going through Sentry getting changed. <laughs> but I don't car. believe that you would have preferred to do No, I, do I promise you. Because you seen you wouldn't. How much sleep did I have? No, sure, no, I, I got in. I'm not saying it wasn't tough. I would have, I promise you, I would have rather. I would have rather do 18 kilometres running more yeah. than go from a coach to a hotel. Co- coach to a hotel, people shouting at you. Dealing where I see you next Tuesday. And you'd rather that than 18, you wouldn't. Yeah, I would, I'm promising that. you. I pr- I'm That's telling you the truth, Terence. I want to do that as a singer. What would you rather? Yeah, don't mind that. There's someone no, sitting no, at home on a sofa to... saying, Calvin's a lazy cunt. No, <laughs> All right, not, sorry about that. Not like that. He's not a lazy cunt. Could he not do the 18 now? No. Well, that's, that's like the that. big thing that everyone is saying. This is the reason why I picked this weekend is because it was a like one weekend had nothing going on. Do you know, like that. And I was flying home early from London. So I was like, I have extra time in the evening to do it. But look, I was in walking on today. Like, you know, I didn't have time to do it. Yeah, no, the, the, the time definitely was a bit of a killer. But to say you prefer that I promise over, you. over 18 kilometres on top of... And what was the hotel like that I stayed in? But you the stayed in a hotel. The headboard was like a dirty man. Yeah, I slept on my shoulder because the bed was about a foot wide. <laughs> I know. You want to see know. this thing? I, I seen the bed, the bed. That was a half a single bed. Yeah. What's that called? What's a half it's a, a prison bed. bed. <laughs> I think the joy would have been better. Staying in the joy probably would have been better. Yeah. The food definitely would have been better. Anyways, the state yeah. of the yoke they gave me. <laughs> but just all this shit. And yeah, do you know what the funny thing was, Eddie? On last week's episode... Uh, and I was saying Friday the 13th and I was like oh that's not that bad, yeah. that bad. and I was like yeah grand Friday the 13th everything that went wrong went wrong yeah, yeah. you know what I mean so there's something in Friday the 13th I don't yeah. like it myself I, have to I was born it. on Friday Where the 13th <laughs> what? no it was a Saturday but it was still the 13th <laughs> absolutely anyway <laughs> still so that's what happened we raised 2,300 something euro for Laura Lynn and people are giving a fuck about you missing three runs I know but hang on don't say the morale didn't lift when I did join in on the runs obviously it did yeah, yeah. yeah. especially because I was already in bits. I, I still hadn't slept by the time you came. Do you get me? So I'm still awake and I'm about to start the, the, 
Fourth round. I'm about to start the fourth round. I'm already at the run 19, can't no sleep, no food. And I'm like, oh, I'm literally on death's door already. And then you come along and stabbed the ordinaries and all, and it was, yeah, it was good. So people are like, what was the hardest part? Was it the sleep, the lack of preparation, the recovery? No, the hardest part was stopping Terrence and his brother up and killing each other. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking when you said the morale lifted. Of course it lifted. He was running with his brother. He needed something. <laughs> oh, killing each other. And then when we got into the house, I'm like, it gets to the later rounds where you actually have to go to sleep. His brother was like, you better not wake me up at this time. And I was like, we have a run. Like, <laughs> so I set the alarm half an hour before the run so you can grow up, get water in, you're fresh to go, you're not groggy. And his brother was like, you better not wake me up before quarter then. I was like, <laughs> you have 15 minutes to roll out of bed and start running then. Cav was nudging me. Me and Cav were sleeping in the bed and all lying down. Cav was nudging me saying, get your gum shield in. We're going in the way. Came up, get the head guard on. Going in like that with your hands up at the start. You come for a run. <laughs> <laughs> shout out to Jern anyways Yeah shout out to Jern again. I don't. Anyways where I was about to go into with little yoke. How do I even go into this I don't even know what to say about it Because my head's actually still wrecked over this idea yeah? So me and Jill were running down the keys 4 o'clock in the morning Yeah, So we started that We actually started late But it was 8.12 for that So 8.12 The 4 o'clock run We're running down the keys And as we're running down the road I can see this silver car right? And I don't know why it caught me eye but I think there was three umplers in there. So I was like, what's going on there? And we was driving a little bit slow. And while we're running, there's like eggs on the floor, every couple of feet up. And I can see that as well. But nothing is springing to mind. Do you get me? It's four o'clock in the morning. We were at the having, I was at the end about 25 minutes sleep. And I needed more. And I was just groggy. And I was, me and Joe weren't even talking to each other. I was like, run, do the run. Don't look at me. You know, one of them. So what they doing there? As we're running down, we get there. What's the hotel on the case? It's a Hilton. It used Is to be the Tories. It's at the... It's at down the near the, the... Custom House. Down yeah, that, yeah. that one there, yeah. So that hotel there. So we get there. The car pulls up in front of us, right? So I can see it pulling up. And I'm sort of saying, right, something's going down here, you know? But again, I'm still asleep, I am. So we're running down. Jay's a few feet in front of me. Car pulls in. Windows come down. She says, what the fuck is going on here? So we sort of froze for a second. Jay gets a bang of an egg in the back, right? <laughs> Thing didn't even break, right? He goes, oh! <laughs> like, he goes, sure. I get a bang of an egg in the wrist, right? And it was one of the same things where the egg hit me, right? And I was like, did that just happen? By the time I could react and sort of go, what the fuck is going on? And look, I had a bottle of water in my hand now. I know you were a governor and all and whatever, but I was going to put this bottle of water straight through the window. I was. But by the time I turned and even was able to react, he blew off in the car the passage. <laughs> but Jay said, imagine going out at four o'clock in the morning throwing eggs, but boiling eggs to throw them. Yeah. <laughs> One heard the screams. It didn't break. But see, when they told me it happened, I was like, ah, come on, we were all young and they don't enjoy these things like that. And I thought it would have been like the eight o'clock or the 12 o'clock run. It was four o'clock in the morning and that they Boys, have you no house parties to go to? You, know what you have a car, text the young one or something and bring her on a spin. Yeah, that's what that's what I was saying. I'm off of the band idea. Yeah, I don't mind that. I got up there, come here. That's the least I worries when I was a kid. And it, Before in the morning, there's shown eggs at That's what, that's exactly but to be honest with you, lads, what I'm taking there is Dublin gets a bad rap because of, you know, the city centre, city centre and all the crack that goes on at night. And if that's the worst that happens at four o'clock yeah, in the morning, no, you're not it, doing too bad. If it was at 12 o'clock, I kind of would have understood it a bit more. Friday night, 12 o'clock, there's lads out acting bollocks in the car. Four in the morning? <laughs> yeah, that's all. I don't, I don't mind it. What happened is, kill. it's funny, they were obviously acting the bollocks all night. Whatever, I got it. But... I was only at the getting 15, yeah. 20 minutes sleep and I was on a run. And I, could, wasn't good. I couldn't come to terms with it. I was like, I, I was like, do I sprint after the car and try and put this bottle of water through the back window or do I? And I was just like, oh, just get me back to the gaff and get me 20 minutes sleep quick. But 
You said a boy. Half hour in the morning, and you are out throwing eggs. Yeah. Lads, play, and you are old enough to drive. Yeah. Like, do you? Oh, I'm Text the young one. But that's What's up? Do you want to come on a spin? Simple as that. Do you know what I mean? Occupy yourself better than throwing eggs with the lads at bleeding four in the morning. But that's still, you're all. Or do you want to throw eggs? Throw them at like 12 o'clock or something. Yeah. I told them raw, at least they'll break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, my one broke on me this time, fuck. But you, he got to buy me like the back the thing didn't break. Yeah. But anyways, yeah, you had legends for you, but you had blessed because it wasn't in any humour. That was going straight through that Paso window. So. That's what happened to us the weekend anyway. That's what happened at the Goggins Challenge. It was a November weekend. Anything else to talk about? I no. felt like we had something else. Did we, yeah? No, we didn't. It was just a November weekend. Ah, it was a great weekend. Yeah. I'll do it again this weekend. Yeah, come on then. <laughs> yeah, have a laugh anymore. You forget about it. Roy, Eddie. Yes. What we did with every guest? Take us back to the start for yourself. Don't have to go into too much detail, but what's your name? Where'd you come from? What was life like growing up? Okay, so Eddie Mullins is my name. Yeah. Uh, I'm a proud South Inner City boy, born uh, yeah. in Lacombe. Uh, lived in a place called Mount Brown until uh, I was 15. Mount Brown, there was an estate there called Kent's Fort. I'd say it's probably the most unique housing estate in Dublin. There's about 200 houses built up on a hill, very small, series of avenues. I've never seen anywhere like it before. Really good childhood. Uh, family of uh, eight siblings, um, mother and father. So three, ten of us lived in a oh, tiny no little. Tr- in that gaff. No, 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 there wasn't. No, uh, ten of us lived in a, a small three-bedroom house in Mount Brown for fifteen years. Uh, went to James Street CBS again, good old school, and um, we moved out to a place called Ratcool, which is out in the country. Uh, yeah. It's still in County Dublin, but at the time it was a, really a country village. Um, moved out there, then I. Uh, did my leaving cert and I failed it. And I said, what the hell am I going to do here? Actually, a good story. A neighbour of ours who was a chef instructor, he used to teach in Colbrew Street here in, in uh, the city. He said to my father one day, this fella's either going to end up in prison or famous. So <laughs> I ended up in prison, <laughs> as it turned out. But uh, so um, I trained as a chef in a place called Rockwell, which is a catering college in Tipperary. And then I worked in a variety of uh, places when I left uh, when I trained as a chef, I worked in um, a number of hotels in the city and that kind of stuff. And then I would say I was a decent enough chef, but I wasn't a great chef. So there was never, and unless you're a really good chef, it's hard to make seriously mo- serious mm-hmm. money out of it. So uh, I was going out with my current wife, or my wife, my only wife, <laughs> and uh, her father was in the prison service and I applied for it. That was back in 1991. Um, and that's as a chef? No, I played. You could, I played as a prison officer. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. Right, Screw, right. yeah, Sorry. prison officer. Yeah. Um, Where does the name Screw come from? Do you know, I should have researched that. We I looked her up. Think, you know, well, we? Yeah, me, you, and Lynn looked her up. It comes from a French term. It's a French verb. Ah, yeah. It's a verb as well. It's not a name. It's a verb. So it's an action, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. That's well. We went for dinner with Lynn. Shout out to Lynn. Actually, brought us for dinner there the other week. She brought me for dinner. Lynn brought me for dinner. Yeah, brought us for dinner. That's when we looked her up. Sorry, pretty good. So yeah, I. I kind of I had a couple of little businesses um, I always wanted a restaurant and a uh, couple of f- food franchises but never really made I wasn't a good businessman never made any money out of it so applied for the prison service never intended to take it um, and got accepted and then my missus kept saying just just give it a week go in go in and see what it's like and so I, I went in um, July 1991 and I'm there ever since so that's would you have had a perception of 
prison and scrolls growing up in the Do you know, no, I knew no oh yeah, I knew people went absolutely, but I never really knew anything about the job of a prison officer. No, I didn't I, I didn't have any idea what to expect. I remember my first day going in and uh, went to Mount Joy, so I had to report to Mount Joy and um the instructor, who was a real hard man, you know, he'd love to intimidate the, the recruits coming in, sent us all up to Fibsor to get a haircut. I came back with a haircut and he sent us up again for a second haircut because we didn't get it cut tight enough the first time. So it was kind of that kind of real, regimental, very regimental. Yeah, oh, yeah, hell, really. Hell yeah. week kind of drill. Absolutely, drills, hell week, yeah. And then, uh, so then we were bussed off from Mount Joy to uh, Port Leash. That was where the training centre was and did about eight or ten weeks in... Uh, in Port Leash. And I'm going to tell you a story that I probably shouldn't tell you, but we were we were all passing out. So when you when you uh, when you've been assigned to your prison, there's normally well for a bit of a, a session. And we went to a hotel in Port Leash called the Collection Hotel. It's a fairly famous hotel in Port Leash. And that particular night, the leaving cert results came out, and uh, uh, so let's just say there was a bit of a row outside the Collection Hotel. And the headline in the local paper was. Prison officers beaten up by leaving their students. So that was that was our <laughs> baptism to to uh, the prison service. So yeah, so worked in a variety of prisons. I uh, worked in so there's twelve prisons in the country. I've worked in seven of them, uh, different roles. I went in as a prison officer. Then I uh, applied for a position in the kitchen and I worked in the kitchen for a few years. Then I became what's known as an industrial manager, so responsible for training programs for prisoners. Then became an assistant governor and a governor, and then. A senior governor, so that that's basically it. Though in a What's the in a nutshell, an assistant governor, governor, and senior. It's just different responsibilities. So you 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 uh, an assistant governor will report to a governor who report to another governor. So it's like a, a command structure. Yeah. So yeah. Just uh, it's just different, better pay, different pay scales. Yeah, that's yeah. what it is it's really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's really it. No, that's that's the kind of the the the, the career to date. So yeah, currently the governor of Mount Joy. So I'm currently the governor of Mount Joy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've been I've been uh, Mount Joy back in Mount Joy there for the last month. I've been in and out of Mount Joy a couple of, uh, well that's probably the wrong phrase I've worked in Mount Joy <laughs> for a couple of times but yeah Mount Joy is a very unique place Yeah. So what other prisons have you worked in as a governor? Okay so the first prison I was in was Lock and House which is an open prison we've two open prisons in Ireland we've one in Cavan and we've one in Wicklow called Shelton Abbey I did uh, about two years in Lock and House as a governor then I was promoted to what's known as a governor two back in Mount Joy then went from Mount Joy to Port Leash from Port Leash back to Mount Joy, from Mount Joy to Midlands, and then from Midlands, to, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, Midlands back to Mount Joy and Wheatfield in between. So I've worked in seven prisons. Uh, I've been governor in five. That's funny because you're saying you've entered this prison for that long, this prison for that long. Me and Terence are a lot of people from the other side <laughs> who've done shifts in prisons like that as well. Yeah. well they probably haven't done as long as me. And I've 31 years done yeah. that. Most You'd of them, that's yeah. <laughs> We love you, Mogi. <laughs> Well, come here. Have you got a favourite prison that you've been the governor in or walking? Oh, yeah, Mountjoy, definitely. Definitely? Yeah, yeah. definitely, Mountjoy. Mountjoy is the craziest prison in many ways, but it is just, uh, it's a unique place, you know. Uh, in the city, something about it, yeah. There's definitely something about it. Something Mountjoy. strange about Mountjoy. What that was like, Port Leash like? Port Leash, to be honest with you, it was boring, in my view. I felt oh, it. Is that, that because it's so tight? <laughs> Well, you'd like to think it was tight, wouldn't you? But it's just, it's a smaller prison. You know, it has a, it has a bit of uh, fame about it because of Port Leash, because infamous. of the subversive. The infamous, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, it, to be honest with you, lads, prison really is prison. I mean, they, the, the surroundings are different, but it's very similar no matter where you go, you know, prison. Except for the open centres, obviously a different regime. But, you know, they're quite similar in ways. But, yeah, my favourite would be Mount Joy. Yeah. Mm. That's what... 
a lot of people will probably be thinking, oh, I said this to you earlier on, so after this we'll put up the guest picture and a lot of people like, oh, they got a big copper on and they got someone involved in the prison system on roasting session and that's not the case. But what we did do was bring notes and whenever no. I bring notes, <laughs> well, I'm in trouble. It's a big one, yeah. <laughs> when Terence brings notes, you should have brought a gun. You ever heard the, no, you know, you've often heard when a, when a lad is taking in for a question and it's no comment. Yeah. No yeah. comment, so be ready no, for no that now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're actually touching on it before we start yeah. recording, Eddie, the difference between you and the guard yeah. so the prison service and the guard people think that they're all one and the same it's just a different yeah. different uh, checkbox in the process but it's not the case I oh, know they're very different Like obviously the guards have far more members than the prison service about two, maybe two and a half thousand prison officers but two different roles like the guards there to, to detect crime to, to, to you know to prosecute to bring it to to uh, the courts for, for a decision then to be made on whoever's being accused of whatever crime so their role is completely different our role I, I would always say our role is, is kind of a two-pronged role. Well, number one is obviously security. So people, some serious criminals end up in prison. It's important that they're detained securely, you know, for the safety of communities and that. But I think the most important role is to try and support people when they go into prison to see can they... Uh, and I, I know it's a, it's, it's, kind of a, it's a sensitive word, rehabilitation, because rehabilitation often means fix. And it's not about fixing people, but it's kind of maybe giving people the opportunity to come back out of prison and... and uh, and maybe take a different path, you know, get involved in a more productive lifestyle. And that's really, I know it sounds very PC and all that, but that's really no, what we're there for, you know. Yeah. Like. yeah. Do you want a cup of water, Eddie? I have one here, you always. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, what, so that, where I was getting at with that whole thing of, or whatever and whatever is, the main reason why we wanted someone like you in here would be to give us what everyday life is like for you as a governor and everyday life for a prisoner in prison. So if you want to tell us what you do, every day, like what your job is in there and then what a prisoner, like what day-to-day -day life is like for a prisoner. Okay, I'm just looking at the, the because <laughs> when I start telling you what a prisoner is, I'm going to say he's definitely talking bollocks now, but anyway, <laughs> I'll give you what I think they think, right? So for my own job, yeah, it is, uh, look at, I, I have the title of governor, but the reality is my job is not that difficult. It's about, it's working with a, a team of people that really, and I know that sounds again like you're giving the official answer, but it's all about working with a group of people to try and uh, try and get through the day as best we can. Like prisons are very uh, emotional places, you know, like you will see every emotion every day. You'll see sadness, anger, you know, aggression, all of it comes. So it's, it's about being ready for that. So they are kind of tense places to be. So you have to be, I won't say on your guard, but you do have to be you know, mindful of the environment you're in. You're, you're in an environment where people don't want to be there, right? Um, so they have a, a multitude of things going on in their head, uh, family issues. This is, I'm talking about prisoners now, and you're trying to navigate through that day. So it's, a, it's always an eventful place to be. Um, it is, it can be repetitious because it's the same thing over and over again. Uh, but it's interesting. Like, I mean, it is, it is, a, it is anywhere we're dealing with people every day, it's hard to know. It's hard to predict what's going to happen. But I'd start at eight in the morning. I usually finish around five. Mm. That's the official now, lads. I'll tell you afterwards. I'm <laughs> really finished that. But um, yeah, so that's really, I mean, I go in to have an office. I go in, I spend me, we have a morning meeting every morning to speak to the management team about various issues, many in court, any of the issues that need, that will affect uh, uh, how the day operates. If there's any particular um, issue that has arisen the previous night or previous day, we'll discuss that and we'll discuss what we have to do. And, you know, hopefully then the day will go kind of smoothly. That's so you have really a great life, Eddie. I wouldn't complain about it. <laughs> You've worked hard enough. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I work very hard, but yeah. yeah. And then I suppose from a prisoner's perspective, like I was saying to you earlier, lads, it, um, while most people don't want to be in prison, of course, very few people want to be in prison, but it is... Uh, 
there is a structure to the day. And in some respects, that's good for people who haven't had a structure when they're out in the community. So uh, lads will come in and they will uh, obviously get, we unlock around quarter past eight in the morning. Lads will get their breakfast. Uh, usually between quarter past nine and half nine, they'll say it's a bit later, but it should be around quarter past <laughs> nine and half nine. Lads are unlocked and they'll go to whatever activity they're going to. So gym is a very popular place to go. The education unit, so school, every prison is a school. Lads who wouldn't have had a, generally had a great experience in school in their, when they were children, have a different perspective on school when they're when it's adult education. It's different. It's not there isn't that kind of a divide. There isn't that um, judgment that might have existed in school. So lads, schools are schools are always very popular. Uh, lads will work in the kitchens, the bakery, whatever it is on the grounds. So the day goes. I'd have visits, and it's a kind of a, a it's a kind of a routine that they get used to. Uh, COVID kind of completely disrupted it because we obviously locked down our prisons to a large degree and that meant that visits were off so you had to It was rough for the Muslims uh, well, uh, You know, there's no doubt about it like as an organisation we're very proud that like we had nobody we had one person who died of a COVID related, related illness but the man was terminal anyway so we've no uh, we've no deaths really attributed to COVID and if you look at any institutional setting like I know all people are nursing homes are slightly different but you know there was a lot of people died in the, in, in, in similar similar settings so, yeah, yeah. but there was a big price to be paid there's no doubt about it and what struck me is that the, the prisoners themselves really from day one bought into like there was this there was unease and unhappiness about the restrictions that were in place but at every opportunity anytime I spoke to prisoners they understood why we were doing it okay didn't like it because it did mean that the, particularly the um, the relationship of families suffered big time you know um, even things like you know day release out to community work that, that, that all stopped so people who could have hoped to get out in a community return programme now couldn't do that right? so they had to serve more of their sentence in prison so yeah it was a very difficult um, period for prisoners uh, and we're still only unwinding and like we're still probably slightly behind the community um, we're getting there but uh, yeah it was a big challenge but it's a di- prison's a difficult place to be like you know um, despite all that structure lads spend a lot of time with each other in, in, in prison right so there is there is always an element of intimidation there's always an element of bullying uh, lads if you're anyway kind of weak or anyway easily led prison's a difficult place to be in that'd be my view now you know yeah yeah how much control do you have of how things run day to day in the prison so when we actually when I you introduced yourself to me and you were talking about the title of governor I thought this was like the, the term screw that it was like an old term that just kept its name like a nickname like the gaffer kind of thing but it's actually an official role so when I think governor you think dictator do you have full control like you're going, you're going in there and you're going to meet the governor and all so it's like this is my house, these are my rules kind of thing. Is that true? Do you have that much say? Look, so so in the, you know, years ago, you know, like society has evolved and prison system years ago was much more austere and it was much more rules focused and it was much more rules based. And it still is rules based. So there are a set of rules that prisoners are required to abide by in terms of, you know, how you engage and your activities, that kind of stuff. But there is, there is no doubt about it. Prisons run best when prisoners and staff and management work well together and get on together. And you'll find in, in you know, if you did any research on, we'll say, uh, uh, trouble in prisons, you'll always find that there's a breakdown somewhere along the line that led to a riot or led to a disturbance. It's not usually random. It's usually a build-up of, of poor services, poor mm. food, poor visits, whatever it might be. And we'd, we'd be always conscious of that. So while absolutely the prison, the, the authorities run prisons, of course we do, at the same time, we are mindful that we have people in prison, right? And it is about treating people with dignity and respect. Now, 
not everybody will say that. I mean, you'll talk to some prisoners and say, no, it's a, it's a hellhole and staff are not, staff don't treat prisoners well. My experience is most of the people I know, there are, there are people in every walk of life that don't treat people with respect. But yeah. most, by and large, I think the prison system is a fairly respectful place to be. It's not a place people want to be. Uh, and you'll find that if you've got a group of prisoners here, they would say it's a kip and it's this and that and the other. But if you spoke to them individually, a lot of them would say, well, you know, actually, you know, I did meet decent people in prison who tried to help me. So, you know, yeah. that would be my view. How would you deal with a prison guard who was sort of toxic, like... Yeah, well, you know, like... like you have to deal with... Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, we have... we have. Um, which, so there's a prisoner's complaint system. There is uh, the CCTV TV footage in prison. There is a supervisory role. So you have... Each officer would have an, an assistant chief officer to supervise him. An assistant chief officer has a chief to supervise him. Chief has a governor to supervise him. So there is a layer of, of uh, supervision. Um, and But I think the, probably the best uh, leveller is prison staff themselves. So prison officers will will you know will call out bad behavior by other prison officers they won't stand by and see somebody tarnish the reputation of the job tarnish their reputation tarnish the reputation of the prison now we're not perfect by the way there are there's always room for improvement but i think there's a there is a, a standard of behavior among most prison officers that would not tolerate Poor it's a pity that's, that's not yeah. the same you differentiate the where the guard are that's the difference there yeah. because if that look not last week, the week before, we spoke about only about a month or two ago, walking up the road and the guard car pulling in, they were harassing me, yeah? Smiling and waving and being arseholes and I'm walking up and I'm like, oh, whatever. And they did it again, pulled up again. And I'm like, anybody in that right mind, if that cop are driving the car was like, come on, we harass him. The other cop would go, just leave the young fella walking up the fucking road, like, you know what I mean? And that's the difference there. In the prison officers are there being like, hold on a minute. Give the fella a blame break or whatever. If the guard were like that, we'd have a lot less well, we've hassle. We've seen it when it has been called to. When, like, look at Morris McCabe. When he did lift the lid on all this, look how his life turned out. You know, he went through hell. Mm. I would say, I know a lot of community guards, right? Which I, I, I think, I wouldn't be very familiar with the units and the guards, but I'd be familiar with dealing with community guards. And there's some really good community guards who... Oh, there's no denying it, yeah. Who would go in and talk to, you know, particularly... And I always kind of focus on young lads because young lads are generally the most impressionable, right? And and I think if you can keep somebody out of prison, right, by diverting them to whatever project it might be, and there's lots of uh, guard diversion projects, and there's lots of community projects, but if you keep a person out of prison, um, they have the best chance of not ever going to prison, if that makes sense to you. So yeah. if you go into prison, the likelihood is for most guys, they'll do a second sentence and a third sentence. Particularly, I'll use the word, particularly people from marginalised communities. So you might find somebody in, a, in, a, in an affluent uh, community who gets a sentence for a particular crime, right? They'll probably never be back, right? But if you get somebody from a, 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 a tough community where disadvantaged, yeah, disadvantaged community, um, and like I hate using that because the reality is I came from a, a marginalised community, right? And the bond in the community was phenomenal, you know, and the support. You will never get it in in any other. I think communities where things are, uh, you know, where money is tight, where resources are tight, you'll find that people help you out with each other. It yeah. just, it's maybe it's just a, uh, or maybe it's just a Dublin thing. Happens that it's, a, it's mm. particularly prevalent in Dublin. But I do think that lads, young lads, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, ending up in prison, you know, and the statistics will bear this out. A lot of them will do probably seven, eight, nine sentences over the 10-year period and might eventually, and one of the biggest um, causes of 
when people turn away from crime is maturity. So if somebody gets older, gets sick of the whole thing of prison, like it is a mundane, it is like you are, your 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 freedom is restricted. You know, there's no doubt about it. You are answerable to somebody every day of the week. Somebody is watching you every day of the week. So that takes its toll after time. And I think the statistics will bear this out that mo you know the. There's a thing called desistance from crime, which when you so a person, the penny drops eventually and say, you know, I can't do this anymore. And one of the biggest factors of that is age or children or a relationship or something that family, says like. family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you look at the lads, a lad in his 20s, young, free and single, right, gets into the, uh, the criminal activity. And, and we'll say the organisers of crime know who to target. They know very well who will, you know, I'll keep this guy. He's good for me for 10 years or whatever. And they'll do, and they're the crowd. I think they're, they're the cohort of people that we need to tackle. You know, and I do think there's really good elements of the guards where they work with them. Every organisation has bad behaviour. You know, there's no doubt about it. Um, um, but it also has a lot of good behaviour. That'd be my view. Be I my think. View. I think. <clears throat> what we say a lot is we've had an awful lot more bad interactions with the guard than good. Yeah. And when I say an awful lot more, I mean ninety-nine percent of my interactions with the guard are bad. And 1% is good. I said this before. I actually had this conversation with a friend of mine. He grew up in a completely different area to me. And I told him, I said, how am I 28? And I never had a positive interaction with the Garda. And he actually mentioned community Garda. Where he from, he had a community Garda. He, he knew from when he was about 10, 11, 12, you know, like that. He'd say hello to the boys and he'd sometimes join in the game of football and all mm. that. You know, like silly things like that. But then when them boys become 17, 18, 19, and they're smoking joints, this, that, and you're like, he pulled them aside and be like, look at I'm not going to do anything here, but cop on, like, do you know what I mean? Don't be silly, blah, blah, blah. And he says, that has a good impression because you have a decent relationship with the guard then. When you see the guard, you're not on edge. You know, stuff like this. And he said, it definitely helps steer them all in a certain way. You know, like that. They might think twice before they do something. Yeah. Because you know, he knows you. Like, Terence, what are you doing? Oh, John, sorry, blah, blah, blah. Whereas it's like, hey, are you on flat? And you're like, oh, what guard? You know, yeah, like that. Fairness, there was That's one of them in Street as well, though. There was a community guard that was in Dawes Street flat years ago as well, and he was a sound fella. Mm. But he'd, ne he'd never acted like a copper. You know what I mean? He'd come into all the boys, and like you said there, like even, so we would have been younger at the time, but the lads who'd be drinking and doing whatever, smoking their joints or whatever, he'd say to them, listen, lads, whatever, just don't act the bollocks. Don't, yeah. don't smash, don't be smashing bottles. Don't be doing any of that, whatever and whatever. They're just going to bring them, guard is going to come in, whatever and whatever. Still, he's around, thinking, have a good night and whatever, and leave them to you, you know? Mm. And like, all the L ones get familiar at the flat. So like, when we, because we obviously, most people from our areas are listening now, so people are pullers and they'd be like, it's late, the guard, you don't remember him. I don't know, I shouldn't say his name on it, should I? I want the copper's name. But anyways, DJ, he was sound, I'm like, yeah, but we're talking about a majority here. We're not talking mm. about one copper, do you get me? Yeah. But that's... that's but I think that's another perception, a miss. Uh, conception of the breaking down that the Garda and the prison service go hand in hand yeah no we would we would obviously share intelligence as they say in, yeah. you know but in terms of um, <laughs> but in terms of uh, no we're two we have two different roles very different, different roles. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah yeah absolutely and uh, and yeah simple as that really yeah. so you talked about young lads uh, if they do one sentence more likely they will come back in and do one or not why do you think there is like that revolving door effect well to be honest with you uh, I think like, I trained as a chef, as I said, you know, and when I trained as a chef, I went to a catering college, right? If you want to train as a doctor, you go to medical school. If you want to perfect your trade as a criminal, where is best, where's the best place to perfect your trade as a criminal other than with other criminals, right? So, now, that's not what the, or, my organisation would like to say, but the reality is when somebody goes into prison, they spend the majority of their time with other people who are serving sentences 
for sometimes similar or sometimes more serious offences and there's a bravado about it okay and if you're young and impressionable and you think that you know I can make seriously serious money here right I can do it easy I can do whatever and and that's the message that's been sold to you a lot of the time when you're in there then it's it's easy to understand why somebody comes out and say you know I, I'll carry on at this and then if you add if you come out of prison right and you're shunned a bit by society so we'll say for example if Terence was to end up in prison and you were friends and Terence comes out and your mother said, look, I don't want you hanging around with Terence. Look, mm. Terence is bad news, right? So all of a sudden then, uh, people that were friends with you before and you were, before you were involved in criminality are afraid to get involved with you. Or as you, you said, if, if the guards, for example, are on to you because of your criminal behaviour, then your friends don't want to be associated with that because mm. they, then you're obviously guilty by association. Mm. So I think, I think it's, a, it's a combination of factors. Uh, I think, um, men, young men are impressionable generally speaking it's like any walk of life you have leaders and followers you did it in school you know you had the, the, the people in school who were high achievers and then you had the, the messers I was in the second bracket mm. you know so like that's the reality of it and I think that's a big factor in people's uh, people, why people um, re-offend and I also think there's the basics about um money you know people, people don't have money poverty yeah there's no doubt about it I, I was telling you earlier just Looked at a couple of statistics just before I came in. Just, just I was interested in two areas in Dublin. One being a very affluent area, and one being the north inner city. Now the north inner city, city. To be fair, like I can remember before I joined the prison service, I had a business in Hill Street. You probably know Hill Street. I you know, know Hill Street? very well. Yeah. So there's a pub in Hill Street, and the penny dropped with me one day that this was bogey because they used to get their deliveries at midnight, right? So the so the kegs used to arrive at midnight. I said, "There's something wrong here because Guinness is closed at five, right?" So, <laughs> so, so I got out of that. But but the reality is, it was a much more um, it was much more poverty stricken mm. than it is today, right? So there's a lot of investments, a lot of good organisations because we deal with them in the prison who are working in in uh, in the north inner city to try and raise standards, right? Um, but that that being said, when I compared the two areas, the north inner city had 29 people, 29, 29 men and four women currently either serving a sentence or on temporary release. And the other area, which is only about 10 miles away in the leafy suburb of Malahide, which is a slightly smaller population, has no one. So there's no doubt about it. There is, uh, crime is often linked to poverty. You know, there's no well, two words about it. You said just a slightly smaller population. Have you got the numbers in the population, sir? So the north inner city, from what I gather, for this area, if you look for north inner city, it says a population of around 20,000, right? And Malahide is a population of just under 18,000. So there's not much difference there. 10% in the difference there. <coughs> and a hundred percent in the difference in yeah, criminals. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, look, there was a governor was in Mount Joy for years, John Lonning. You've probably heard of John Lonning. John yeah. Lonning was governor for twenty years, and he always said uh, the majority of the prison prisoner population came from areas of Dublin, but an uneven number. Right, so Dublin one, Dublin North seven. Dublin. No, yeah. So it was, and he just simplified it by saying that that the areas where that were most deprived in terms of services, in terms of money, in terms of uh, um, employment there was a direct link between that and people involved in criminal behaviour. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that working class people are criminals, right? I mean, the reality, it doesn't. It's just that I think in some cases, not in all cases, in some cases, 
criminal activity is born out of poverty, you know, that mm. kind of way. And Opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say in all cases. I mean, that's the thing, again, when people talk about imprisonment, they generally try and cohort everybody into one label fits everybody in prison, and it doesn't, you know, because like, there are people in prison who have no interest in rehabilitation. They're making serious money in criminal activity, and they just simply come in, do their time, and go back out and resume their criminal activity. Yeah. And they're not the people I have any interest in, right? But there are people then, as I said, we've talked about them, the young lads who come, in, who come into prison uh, and probably are impressionable, vulnerable, might have an addiction issue. Again, a huge factor in criminal behaviour is people who have addiction issues. Right? Addiction and mental yeah. health. Yeah, mental health. Mental health is a very new phenomenon in prison because years ago, mental health, there were mental health hospitals, right? So the city had four or five, maybe six or seven of them. So people with mental health issues didn't end up in prison. But now more and more people, because there's no facilities in the community for, we'll say, for um, in-house treatment, a lot of them end up in prison. So, yeah, that's a new issue for us we have to deal with is because we're not trained mental health professionals. We are trained as prison officers to manage that cohort of people. And can we get to a stage where we train prison officers to deal with people suffering with trauma and mental health? We can. And what we've done in the last, we'd say, four or five years, for example, we've a, a significant number of psychologists, right? So when I joined the prison service, I think there might have been one psychologist in the in the service. Now most prisons have three, four and five psychologists and they are working away through trauma with people. And, you know, most people in prison have had some sort of a traumatic experience in their lives, be it in mm. school, be it in childhood, be it wherever it might be. It could be they could have been abused as a child, whatever it might be. And that's something that we need to tease through. And in fairness, our psychology, you know, the, the more and more prisoners would say to you, I need to see the psychologist, where they open up, they want to talk to the psychology team about uh, the issues that trigger this criminal behaviour, trigger violence, whatever it might be. So, yeah, we are, we are very much aware of the need to help people with mental health issues as well. Addiction, much bigger problem. I well, it's debatable. I think it's a bigger problem. And I don't think we've quite, got to grasp with the level of, of support that people who have addiction issues need. And you see, the problem is people continue to use while they're in prison. So it's not like somebody has made a decision to say, you know, that's it. I want all the help to stop, right? So you could have an addiction counsellor talking to somebody who is high as a kite while they're talking to them, you know, that kind of way. So, so that makes it a bit more complex and a bit more mm. challenging than somebody who has decided... And I'm you know, simplifying it by saying deciding because if it, you could decide to give things up, we would all do it. So yeah. it's not that they decide, <coughs> but that there's a watershed moment there. So you know, I can't live my life like this and afford it. I want help, and and but they, but they're still using, if you know what I mean. And yeah. like and and the difficulty with people using is that they in prison in general they will use whatever they can get their hands on, right? So it's not necessarily a drug of choice. It is whatever like whatever's available, whatever's available. Away, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. Which is. It's a scary. What? What? So, so they're still getting drugs in prison, yeah. Yeah. What's your take on like legalizing drugs and having a place for prisoners and people to use who need it? Well, do you know the funny thing about it, you look? We talked about methadone. Right? If you look at methadone, so back in the eighties and the nineties, heroin was a massive problem in Dublin, and the the methadone maintenance program. And people, are, there's lots of people criticise methadone, right? But the difference between that and we'll say heroin use is that when people were on heroin it was like the, city, the city was destroyed with pe well, people were destroyed the city was fine the city lived but the people on heroin were destroyed they they looked 
and you know you knew you were looking at somebody who was chronically addicted to a substance, right? Now people can 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 you know go onto a methadone maintenance program for maybe all of their life, right? And okay, there are effects, no doubt about it, methadone affects people, but they can live a reasonably normal life. You know what I mean? They can they can live a stable life. What is normal? I suppose normal is the wrong word, but they can live a stable life. Uh, so, and that's a form of a legal of a legal drug. You know, methadone is a prescribed drug, but still more or less does the same thing as an illegal drug does. So there is an argument for um, for uh, legalizing drugs. I, I, I'm not so sure about legalising drugs, but but certainly legalising, you know, stop criminalising people who use drugs. That's, That's what I would well, say. This is a big, this is the thing that we always talk about. This isn't a criminal problem, it's a health problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if someone who's addicted to heroin shouldn't end up on your doorstep. Yeah. See, well, your line of work, I should say, sorry. Probably why they do, uh, Calvin, is because they've engaged in a criminal activity to support the habit, right? And that's yeah. why I think, like, I, 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 I'm jumping on, onto something here, but like, I absolutely agree that somebody who is chronically addicted, the last place they should be, or even not chronically addicted, yeah. the last place it should be is criminalised and in prison because of that addiction, right? Um, but at the same time, I've seen, like, I, I can think of an example of a, a prisoner, and I'm really jumping to another, but it just came into my head, so I said I'd say it. A prisoner uh, in Mount Joy who was assaulted in the exercise yard. This is a year or more ago. And uh, he required medical attention. And his... Mother phoned me uh, and she was really annoyed about the fact that uh, he was after uh, he was after getting medical attention and nobody in the prison had contacted her to tell her, right? So I was explaining to her, I said, look, and the man was 40, right? So I said, look, this is a grown man. I said, he, he is, there, there, there's, there are security issues around when people have medi- uh, need medical attention. But at the same time, I said, if it was a life and death situation where you needed to know that your son was, you know, terminally ill or whatever it might be, of course we contact you. But for, for your average run-of-the-mill assault, we don't do that. We have protocols mm. around it. And she accepted that. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to use the opportunity now to ask her, why did she think he was assaulted, you know? And she, she said he was assaulted because he owed six grand for drugs, right? But the real sinister thing about this was the six grand, he was in prison, so he was pretty safe other than he'd, he'd received an assault. But she was out in the community. And I'm assuming if he was 40, she was certainly 60. Mm. Right? And she was bringing his kids, because I think the, the, the mother of the children, I don't know where she was, I didn't really get the story of the mother of the children, but the, his two children were living with her. And she was bringing the two kids to school. And just as she got to the school, a girl approached her and a girl told her that her son was after being assaulted in Mount Joy. And he'd be killed the next time if she didn't pay the, the bill, right? So she, I said, so what did you do? And she said, she, uh, she, spoke, she spoke to the girls, I'm assuming. She said the girls, it was our daughters, right? And they went to a money lender and they got the six grand and they paid the six grand to the drug dealer. So now they had the debt to pay the money lender. And I, I was asked, how do you pay the money lender? She said, every week, the girls and herself give something out of their book, which I'm presuming is their social welfare book. And uh, they pay off the money lender. And, uh, but the real bad part about it was, so you, know, so you had the grandmother, you had the son, you had the daughters, and the two children, she said she'd stopped bringing the children to school because she was afraid that her dad be attacked or she'd be attacked outside the school, right? So you had three generations of uh, the one family for a reasonably small debt, six, six grand, what's six grand? And they were all living in fear. And she, she told me that, I said to her, just before she got the phone, I said, so, so how do you cope with this? And, you know, it was a real sad thing. She said, I wake up in the morning 
if she smokes, she said, I light up a cigarette. And for the first minute, she said, I think life is normal. And then I realised how hopeless my life is, right? Now, there's a, an innocent woman, right, doing her best, right? And I've heard that story, not just in Dublin. It's not a Dublin phenomenon. I've heard a farmer contacted me from Mayo, but his son who was involved in it. And it was low-level criminality, but he was getting grief. So that's all over there. And, and that's the the other side of of the drugs trade, you know what I mean? Like, if you owe money, it's a, it's a dog-eat-dog. This is my experience. No matter what you owe, it will be paid. Nobody will say, you know, it is, ah, Wipe Calvin's a nice guy, we Wipe let him go this man. They might do that on the first or second time to get you, you know, to feel comfortable dealing with them. But after that, every debt will be paid regardless of what. And that's the, and again, that's probably a stronger argument for saying, you know what I mean, if you legalised uh, uh, personal use, drug, drug, abuse, drug taking, you probably would go some way to getting rid of that darkness about Less drug dealing where, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so, now that was a bit of a long-winded story, lads. Yeah. But I thought no, it's I was, something. Oh, you had an example I wanted to give, and this is something you you know very well, Terence. I didn't. I always said I talk about it when it kind of came full circle, but I want to mention it now. Uh, and I, oh, fuck, I will, anyways. But I was in court over something a couple of months ago, and when I was there, I remember standing around and I was looking and I was saying to myself, "Something's not right here, right?" And I was like thinking, I, I was saying to myself, "I shouldn't be there." What what the that that's another podcast anyways but I remember thinking to myself because my missus was with me and I said to her I said look at everybody around you right so there was barristers solicitors guard right and I say all in all there was about three or four hundred people hustling bustling around yeah I say about 300 of them all addicts I said 90% of the people in there roughly probably more in court before the judge are addicts if they weren't addicts they wouldn't be in there and I said, that's a problem. Like, regardless of what I'm there for, yeah, this is a fucking issue. If they, if drugs were legalised, then we can strip it back to say, why is this person using drugs? They have this traumatic event in their life or they had something that they couldn't deal with and drugs drowned that out. You know, they, they're trying to cope with something. So why are we imprisoning these people for trying to cope with something? You see, Calvin, I think... Yeah, if, I read a statistic recently about cocaine use and they were saying that there's more... The value of the cocaine uh, trade in Ireland is greater than the value of Guinness trade in Ireland. Right? So, so like when we think of people on the margins who are drug users, the reason they come to our attention is because they might engage in criminal activity, they might shop in levels to support that. But the vast majority of drug use is done by people who are very well paid, mm. who can afford 400 euro, 500 euro a week out of their salary to buy their cocaine or whatever it might be, and they never come to the attention of the law, right? So, so, the, the, so the other side of legalizing drugs, I, I, like I have to say, I have mixed views on it. I think what we need to do, rather than go and legal, and, and obviously you're not going to legalize everything. We need to, yeah, and we need to target the people that are most affected by it. And I don't mean just by the use, but like it's like the people that end up in the criminal justice system for stealing to support their drug habit. And most of those people, by the way. I think, and again, this is me, me taking a big leap here because I don't have statistics to say it, but I think most of those people are addicts, addicts rather than drug users. So, so you can have a drug yeah. user who can function very normally, go to work, most of them do, all the professions drug we know. Drug abuse and drug abuse, yeah. that's the difference. Yeah, there's a big difference. A huge yeah. difference yeah. there. And I think Limerick One actually said it to us that I think there's more people that you, more 
people in middle and upper class areas that use drugs rather than mountain class areas that use cocaine. Sorry, cocaine. Cocaine. Cocaine doesn't no discriminate. Yeah. I've seen all sorts of people use cocaine, and I mean everybody uses cocaine. All different classes, all different ages use it. Male, female, yeah. Yeah. name it. They use it, and I've seen and it's people. back now because money is is is, is there again. Mm. I mean, the cocaine is just—it's the drug of choice now. You know, they, particularly in the middle class, particularly in the professional classes. You know, uh, there's a there's a there's a kind of a. a I won't say there's a negativity associated with, we'll say, tablets. There's a negativity associated with hash. But there, there is kind of a, it's nearly hip to be using cocaine, you know, mm-hmm. rather than, we'll say, the more, what we call lower class drugs. Yeah. That's my view, again. I don't have a base. It's not based on... Oh, horrible, horrible drug. And uh, like I was saying earlier, look, I, my, my friend who only got out recently enough said to me, when he got sentenced by the judge, he'd never been happier because... He owed out bills, which you ended up getting paid off now. But he said it, there was no way he was going to stop doing coke every single day unless he got unless he got sentenced. He said when I got sentenced, the relief I had, they're going to wind the fucking thing, which is terrible to think. Yeah. Like because although it's easy to say, well you're fucking still going and using it, but when you're addicted to something, you'll you'll do anything. You go to the bleeding end of the wall, the garage. You get me? Yeah. But getting locked up down for him was a relief. Just to and you know, in some cases, and that's the other side of prison, sometimes it breaks that chronic cycle that people are on, so they get a sentence, there's nearly a sense of relief, because, you know, when you go into prison, prison people, prisons will tell you prison food is terrible, right, but the reality is, it's what you call, um, it's industrial catering, right, so it's not beautiful. But yeah, it's, it's nutritious. It's, it's made it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's nutritious. It meets the requirements from a, from a dietitian's perspective. All that kind of stuff. So lads are coming in. They're getting three meals a day. They're getting they're getting a level of medical treatment. And let's I would say it's a good level of medical treatment. Addiction services are there. They're not there as but they're not there in the community. Others they're not there as much as they should be. So it gives an op- a, a guy an opportunity to kind of pause everything right, and stabilise and and and, and maybe. Um, you know, reinvigorate their health and all that kind of, which does happen. And and then, and that's what I'm saying, if you could only, if the supports were only there when people came out of prison, that cycle would be broken. And you know, the, the really sad thing about, uh, um, uh, we'll say, pr- imprisonment is it's very much intergenerational. So, like, I'm 30 years in the prison service now and I'm seeing the sons of lads that were my, young, in their 18, 19, when I joined the prison service and now their sons are in and very often when they come in for a visit if they see me they'd be chatting to me as if we were friends like they were saying do you remember such and did you ever see such and such and that kind of it's like reminiscing you know yeah. but that's an intergenerational thing and again if you can get if somebody especially a young lad because we have we have some women locked up there's no doubt about it. there's about 200 or thereabouts but predominantly it's a, it, prisons are made up of men uh, and if we can Get somebody when they come out of prison and support them. And employment is a big issue, and and and, and meaningful employment, not not just a job where a lad gets the minimum wage, because that is not attractive to somebody who has been used to five or six hundred euro a week, whatever it is. So we need to give people meaningful jobs that give them an opportunity to to live a decent life, a decent life, so it's a part of family of a family, and break that cycle. And then their kids will never know yeah. that the father was in prison. And it never becomes a norm. Like it's 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 actually one of the saddest sights in prison is when you see generations coming through. But when you even you see young kids coming in to visit fathers because mm. it's all it's like it's it's strange. It's a really surreal situation. Women usually girls bringing up the kids to see the husband or the partner, whatever it is. So the kids are dressed up in their best, right? They're brought up looking well, and and it's an awkward situation, small little room, awkward situation. There's other visits going on. 
and the father is trying to have a bit of a relationship or trying to get to know the kids because if they're in for a few years they don't know the kids and the kids it's awkward the mother's trying to keep the child quiet because it's 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 like going to it's like going to if you went to mass years ago you couldn't talk at mass there's always these things so you know if you can get somebody out of prison and break that cycle you actually break it for a whole generation and the next generation coming you know because it's more likely that you'll end up in prison if you've had a family member in prison. Family in yeah. And you were saying about employment there a few minutes ago and you were saying uh, what the prisoners do, you are giving us uh, an insight to what they do day to day. And you were saying they go to gym, some go to school. Can we not get apprenticeships into prisons? We can. And in fairness, it, it, like there's a lot... Uh, so... It's, it's not straightforward, right? So there, there are Sullis, for example, who would have been fast years ago, Sullis now, the state agency for, responsible for, for uh, apprenticeships, yeah. work very closely with the prison service trying to devise, we'd say, modern uh, apprenticeships, like apprenticeships that are relevant for today's labour market. Right? And there is a lot of work going on there. Uh, and it, and it, it'll, it'll pay dividend in a couple of years' time where you'll see the benefits of people who've gotten a particular type of training and it'll give them an opportunity to earn a good living. But the thing about, uh, we'd say, somebody coming out of school and somebody coming out of prison, the challenges that are faced are dramatically different. Oh, and that's the problem. And I yeah. always think that, and I've seen, you know, uh, people who are really committed, say, they come in, like, we have an expo in Mountjoy tomorrow, there'll be 20 employers there coming in that really want to try and support somebody coming out of prison. And, you know, and a lot of them will take on prisoners and it won't work out because... The prisoner, you, like it's not like you know, uh, you go get a job and you're expected to do this. The other, very often, lads don't turn up, right? If they're if they're still using drugs, they're they're going off to get a, a, a whatever drugs they need, and they're not turning up for work. So you have to be very patient and tolerant of people. Not everybody. I'm I'm generalising here, lads, but you have to be very patient with somebody who leaves prison and expect them to make a mess of it occasionally and and be prepared to overlook that and be prepared to like for example if somebody has a, a an addiction and they're dealing with it and they're and they're meeting an addiction counselor you need to be say you know this you take the afternoon off and go and see your counselor and and like the funny thing about people leaving prison and again I generalize is they'll always tell you they'll always tell an employer yeah I did 6 months or I did 12 months or I did 5 years whatever it is like there's an employer in the UK that uh, Timsons they they shoe repair key cutting and they're all over the UK they're usually in supermarkets and he's a, a very wealthy guy he told a story about going into one of the prisons in the UK this is a good few years ago and he felt you know he, he his family they used to foster people right so when he get up in the morning he come down and there could be four or five foster children there so he had this sense of you know I, I, I'm very privileged I need to help yeah. people in the, on the margins so he went in and he got 10 prisoners, took them out to one of his shops and gave them a job and it was a disaster right? because he didn't do any of the preparation that was needed. Right? And they robbed from him and they sold drugs in the shops and it really was a massive open, eye-opener for him. Right? But he didn't stop. He said, you know, we, we, we look at, well, why did they do this and why did they, why did they do that and what can we do to stop them doing this, that and do that? And they did that. Now, Timpson's now 10% of their staff are all ex-prisoners and an awful lot of them he says and he tell, he's, like, he's very proud of this an awful lot of them are uh, managers they're running shops they've a huge amount of responsibility but the one theme and common theme for them all is they'll always be honest with you they'll always say look I really appreciate the chance I did make a mess of this I did make a mess of that and I'm trying my best now if you think about it what other section of society is as honest when they go for a job and when they look for a job mm -hmm. and when they say you know I made some mistakes in the past I really made a mess of things in the past but I really want this to work for me you know so 
Yeah, it's it's. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah I wanted to ask you about that because Lynn always touches on the spent convictions. Yeah. Act. What what's your take on that? The fact that someone makes a mistake when they're young. Let's say they're nineteen. They do three years in prison. They come out when they're twenty-two. Three years of their life are gone. Where like nineteen to twenty-two, you could be applying yourself. You could be doing a trade. You could be in uh, education. You could be really better than yourself so you come out them three years are gone and you're expected to rehabilitate into society then you go to get a job but you can't because you have a conviction so how are you expected to integrate back into society and contribute to society when that block is put in place at 22 no you're right but I, but, I, but I suppose the point I'd make is absolutely the spent convictions uh, legislation that Lynn has been promoting for, and she's been promoting it for years like I met Lynn maybe five years ago and she was working on that then so it's a really slow process right but one of the, and that's not in any way to take away from, you know, the spent convictions legislation, but um, having a conviction doesn't bar you from every form of employment. There are certain jobs, uh, for example, you know, I, that, that we would say, I won't go into them all, but teaching, we'll say, all of those, yes, where you need guard clearance. But if you don't need guard clearance for, to be a, a plumber, right, or to be a, a manager of a shop, or, to, so an awful lot of employment, Employers probably hide behind the convictions thing because that's why I mentioned the apprenticeship. Yeah, because you don't actually have to have a, 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 an unblemished record to be a plumber, right, or to be an electrician, or to be a whatever it is. It's 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 sensitive areas around childcare, it's sensitive areas around uh, around, uh, oh, I suppose healthcare, a lot of those things, right? And yet that's why the Spence conviction legislation that Lynn is working on is so important because it opens up. Every form, every form of employment to people. But I don't think we should forget that there are a huge amount of jobs that anybody can do if you have the skills, regardless of what your previous record was. If you're skilled enough and uh, motivated enough to do them, it doesn't matter if you have 100 convictions. Yeah, well, what, what I'd ask you then would be like, so I spoke about my friend earlier who went in and he was happy to go in because he was getting away from the coke then, yeah? So he only went in for six months, right? So what's your take on minor sentences? Because now he's had to go in doing six months, yeah? And say he goes in there, goes to the drugs counselling courses, gets out, gets clean, fresh, wants to go for that goal of being a teacher, wants to go for this, he's had to get away from that, he's fresh now. But he's still, it's still on his record for a minor crime, mm. a minor sentence. What's your take on minor sentences? And is that, like, there surely does a, a better way yeah. to benefit. The prisons don't benefit. You have another body in there. It's more money spent on a prisoner. And he doesn't benefit. He now has a conviction. Like, that's with him for life now. And for what? Three months? Six months? Well, no you've, one... just, you've just said what my take is on it, right? Because the bottom line is, even for somebody... Uh, like, short sentences are pointless, in my view. Right? Yeah, I'm not I'm speaking as anyone else. They're pointless, right? Because as a service, right, it takes us a year, two years, three years to deal with people. So, if, for example, if you're engaging with psychology, right, and you're doing six months, you're gone before yeah. you've actually had any benefit dealing yeah. with psychology, right? So, I would say it's absolutely pointless sending anybody, and this is a kind of a, a perverse way of putting it, into prison for less than a year. Yeah. So, pointless. because you need to be looking then at alternatives to prison and there are loads of them out there I mean I mean, when I was, when I was younger people used to say like the, the city was falling down and my my mother's generation say, I can't understand why prisoners are not out working in the community, doing both manual work and, and community work. It sounds like a simple solution, mm. and I think it is a simple solution. And uh, But I personally do think that short sentences are pointless. Now, I would say 
there's a there's a what we call a community return scheme, right? So people go into prison and after 50% of their sentence can go out into the community and do community work. So there is lots of progressive uh, alternatives to prison um, uh, initiatives out there, but there's not enough of them because yeah. people are still going to prison for, like people still go to prison for a month, right? Mm. So they come in. Well, I, have no TV license. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have an ongoing. I had, a, I, ha- no, I had, a, I had a, a, a zinger on TV license, <laughs> but I can't remember what it was. Is now, it true that you turn people away at the door if they have a t- if I've never seen anybody now coming uh, with a TV license because it is a, it's one of those stories in folklore, right? There's no such thing as anybody going yeah, to prison. There's no such folklore. thing as a TV license inspector. <laughs> well, so it's online thing. now. Isn't it? No, it's all folklore. That's oh, is all it? a myth yeah. that is. Yeah, he's like the boogeyman. He's not real. And you sat there in front of the government, Chef. He's never seen someone coming through the gate to the prison. For so I'm not I'm not saying license. don't pay your TV license. No, that's exactly you can't tell you to Mount Joy. Do you have a TV license for the Joy? We have, yeah, we have. You're a say we have. Well, I think I, we have what's called a multi-user license, so we're very compliant. User like the pubs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have the little point in the corner. I'm not sure if I have one at home, though. That's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, now, to go back now on the more serious thing, so... You were talking about rehabilitation. You you don't like the term because that means fixing people. Well, traditionally, if you look at if you, I did a bit of studying a few years ago on on, and one of them was on re was reintegration into society. That yeah. was the theme of the subject, and a lot of the research said rehabilitation. So, for example, if you broke your leg, right, you'd go to rehabilitation. Rehabilitation, right? So it's it does suggest that somebody is broken, right? Uh, and I suppose it's the term that we always used. The rehabilitation uh, of prisoners is is something that people. But it's not technically technically correct, right? Because you're fixing somebody. It doesn't mean they're broken. They may need supports, uh, be it through addiction or whatever it is. But that's a different thing than fixing a person, if you know yeah. what I mean. So that's why I'm a little bit, always a little bit pernickety on that one. Because I think, I don't know, it, maybe since I started this podcast or maybe it's just life in general, but I've been thinking about this a lot over the last year. So that just the, the concept of prison, right? Someone commits a crime, cause, probably because I have a child as well. When someone does something wrong, you punish them so they don't do it again, right? So the concept of prison is you take them away from society, you make them serve as time there, and then you put them back out into society. So we're investing in them to house them there. What's a 90-odd grand a year for a prisoner? So we should make them the best version of themselves as possible in the time that they're there. So when they come back out, they're contributing more to society than they took away, if, if that is possible. So how do we do that? Yeah, but you see, Calvin, I'm actually surprised what you said, make them, right? So one of the biggest problems is trying to make anybody do something that they don't really want to do or they're not really in that space to do, right? So what the prison service should do and what society should do is give everybody the opportunity to do it themselves. But it, it's like it's like you said, punishment, right? Punishment, like it's a negative term, right? So if you punish somebody, you're doing something against their will. They don't want to be punished, right? So you're not going to actually get you're not going to get a positive result out of that. You might get compliance. You might say, yeah, okay, while I'm here, I'm not going to do that because I can't do it. But that doesn't mean that they're, they're saying, you know, that by being sent to prison and by being punished by being sent to prison, I now know that, well, they might say they never want to go to prison because they didn't like it, but it's not because they went to prison. If you know the point I'm making, making somebody do something against mm. their will is often, often has, in my view again, often has a more negative outcome than actually sitting down with somebody and saying, you know, it is, look, there is a different way. And I don't mean in a flowery way, but if you say, you know, the reality is, look, if you had the support, or I provide support, and you want to deal with your, whatever issue it is, and I will provide them and I'll help you as much as I can, mm. 
that's a two-way process. That is somebody saying, I want to do it, rather than me saying to you, you, like in the prison service, we often had, for example, particularly people doing life sentences, for example, where they would be, there would be an obligation on a person doing life sentence to engage in particular activities. Anger management, you must do the anger management course, you must do this, that and the other. And now we're looking and we're saying, well, hold on, rather than saying you must do it, you must want to do it. You must say, something must come in your head and say, you know, it is, I'm in this situation because I can't control my anger. I'm, I, when I'm out, whatever it is, there's a trigger there that causes me to engage in violent behaviour, which has end, which has resulted in me ending up in prison. And when that trigger is there and say, I need to deal with that, and then I'll deal with the professionals or the professionals deal because it's an, it's an equal two-way process then. Does that make sense? Do you, yeah. do you know where you're coming from, but what I was thinking is that like, if somebody says commits a crime, they get like a seven-year sentence, which is a decent stretch. In seven years' time, when they get out, or whatever it is with remission, whatever, you want them to be a better person. Surely they have to be a better... Like what, or else, what was the point? Yeah. Or what's the point in even letting them out then if you know they're not going to be a better person? You know where I'm coming from there? Yeah, I do. Now, there's two... First of all, we have to let them out. So even if mm. they're not a better person, if they've served their sentence, that's it. We've no authority to keep them any longer, right? Because there are people who say, hold on, you know, he could do it another year or two. He might be better. But that's not the way the system works. Mm. And the other thing is, uh, I, I firmly believe you have to reach a point in your life where it's more or less your choice, okay? And it might be it might be not something you don't want to do, but you realise if I want to spend the rest of life with my kids or whatever it is, I need to do this, right? So even if it isn't something that you're comfortable with, but if you realise that this is my only route out of this situation, then you'll see people will engage and you'll get more out of them, right? It's a bit like, I, I think, when I go back to school. I mean, I can remember when I was when getting ready to go back to school in September, I loved the idea of going back to school and by the middle of September, I hated school. Right? Yeah. And no matter what people said to me, you know, it didn't change the fact that I didn't study because I didn't like it. And I think it's the same, maybe simplified, but I think it's the same when you want to change a particular behaviour or a behaviour that's gotten into a particular situation. If you don't realise that you need to do that and want to do it yourself, mm. nobody can make a change. This is getting very heavy, lads, isn't it? Oh, Jesus. This, this is what we do. This is what we do. It's not all bleeding fun and giggles, but yeah. I think it's a great insight because I think uh, the prison system and stuff like that is alien to a, a lot of people out there. Like, I think without, like... Like, I think we know more people who've been in and out. We have sort of an insight. We don't have to be in there as yet. We have an insight, but, like, we sort of have an idea of what goes on. So I think you talking about it now on the podcast, a lot of people, that's alien, so they be... I think it's good to give an insight to what it's like, but I'm, I'm baffled by the, I'm just baffled by the whole thing of how different prison guards are to the guard. That's it. That's even at the take of me back. So I didn't expect you to come in and say stuff like that, like, like not stuff like that, yeah. but I just mean how different it is. So you learn something new every day in the talking bollocks yeah. podcast. Every day is a skill there. Yeah. yeah. One of the things, lads, I think that it's important to mention, and if you don't know mind me saying, is is obviously. You, we're talking about people in prison and people are in prison because they committed a crime and there are victims of crime and it, and it's and it's always like there's a balance between even the conversation there's a balance between um talking about people just in prison and the reason they're in prison right yeah. and because I get lots of calls from people who are traumatized and it particularly serious crime so they're traumatized for the rest of their lives and they find it very hard to get over and they often ring and be very annoyed with the prison system because they've heard somebody is out and they say, well, look, you know, really, in my view, that person should have never got out. The crime was so heinous and all that. And we understand all that. And like the point I'd always try to make is if you can prevent somebody from going into prison, 
you know, and, and like cr criminality, beha the behaviour does spiral. So you have, you know, you might go in for a, a relatively minor offence. The next one might be a bit more serious. The next one might be a bit more serious. Then before you know it, you're in for a particularly serious offence where there's a victim who has really been impacted by it. And, 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 and to try and justify this when I'm talking in you know, in, in defence of people in prison and I'm talking about what I think we need to do to help people in prison. I try and say to people who are victims that, look, it's terrible. I completely, I'll never actually fully understand what you're going through because thankfully I haven't been in that situation. But I do believe if we support people, you know, maybe someone will be saved from being in the situation you're in. And I think you kind of forget victims in the whole discussion around uh, the purpose of imprisonment and the impact of imprisonment. I come from the background where I'm meeting people, I'm seeing the impact it has on families and I have to say it's 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 immense. Like, it's not just the one individual that goes into prison who's doing the sentence. It, it is generally the entire family, right? And there still is an element of shame about it. Like, so particularly for mothers, they hate to admit, like we talked earlier, uh, um, Terence and you were saying about uh, somebody who was said they were away, so the mm. children think that that person's away. And that's a very common story. Mm. Daddy's gone to England to work or whatever it might be. So that suggests that they're ashamed of yeah. the fact that he's in prison. So, but it's, it's, it's kind of a subject that you need to get a balance on. Uh, you know, like if you, if you come down on the, on the, predominantly on the side of one argument because I've had arguments with people who believe that you know people don't get long enough in prison and there should be more people in prison and we should build more prisons and, and this stupid notion that prison is a holiday camp and I can That's assure I you it's you. not a holiday camp what's your, what's your perception oh, look prison is a really really difficult place to be and it's not you're putting somebody who first of all doesn't want to be there like think about it Mountjoy has 712 men in a small area right okay Thankfully, they all have an individual cell, so you have that space yourself where, you know, you want to go back to your cell to be on your own, you can do that, right? But for most of the day, it's an unnatural environment for 712 men all to be in their own company. There's a lot of female staff and all that, but, you know, it's not a nice place to be. There is bullying, there's intimidation. It, uh, it is definitely a place of last resort. And it's not a holiday camp. And when somebody says, oh, they have tellies in their cells, like, um, who doesn't have a telly? You know what I mean? That is a basic, uh, well, most people don't know because they use their phones. I was just going to say, somebody else said <laughs> that to me. But for my generation, a telly is just a normal a normal thing. So, but it's a, it is about a bit of a See, I think that comes from people who have very narrow minds. Like, the, a lot of people don't even ask what the crime was yet, yeah? but they, they hear of a prisoner and they go, well, they're in there for a reason, so they yeah. should have nothing. Mm. And you're like, you don't even know what the man done. Circumstances. Yeah, right. like, you don't know what that young fella or what that person has gone through in life to end up in that yeah, situation. That, that, they could have just literally, like, wrong place, wrong time kind of thing. Oh, and that happens. There's it's no doubt about it. Like, it yeah. can be unfortunate. Like, even, there's a real... Uh, Again, because it's a very sensitive one because there are victims. But the whole idea around a one-punch crime, right? So when somebody is unfortunate enough to be to be injured or fatally injured following a punch outside a nightclub or whatever, outside a pub, whatever it might be, like when you think about that, and another area where it's really, really traumatic is uh, road traffic accidents. So when you see a group of lads, Donegal, for example, went through a really difficult period a few years ago where there were several young people died in road traffic accidents. Families lost, like, it should never happen. They lost young people. But equally, the, the person who drove that car was irresponsible, was reckless, shouldn't have driven, all that. 
but didn't go out with the intention of okay. killing his yeah. mates or his friends or, you know, so, and that's a really emotional, sensitive uh, area. And it's hard to actually say on either one side or the other, because I've seen the people who are serving the sentences and you know, you say, that chap will never be back in prison again. Mm. That is a horrendous. Does he deserve to be there? Well, he does because he he, he, he did a, a, a criminal act or, Oh, and unintentionally because it was stupidity I'll drive the car with whatever did a criminal act and a number of people lost their lives there's no winners there's no there, everybody's a loser if you know what yeah. I mean it's, it's, it's one of them situations where you have to look at every single thing you do and look I know people will say that I'm flippant when I say that and I'm not because I'm never trying to minimise the uh, the impact that it's had on the families who lost children but I, I've seen the other side where parents have come in to support a son who is absolutely ostracised in this community because of a reckless thing and, and you know I hate to say it but it could have been any of the other people in the car who could have been the driver you know mm. it, not saying it, 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 in any way saying anybody was culpable mm. but those are tragic situations where nobody is a winner everybody is a loser you know and yeah, and you know that's it. another side of, of the whole so like prison is made up of just it's a microcosm of society everybody is like every oh I was going to say every, every section of society is represented it isn't really okay there's a lot please want to be next question <laughs> okay well I won't say any more so go on will you shift my friend with Graham and Nathan a go loud original will you shift Will you shift, my friend? Kiss. Snog. Meese. Score. Wear the face. Oh, shift. Will you shift, my friend? The new podcast by us, Graham and Nathan. We talk to your favourite personalities all about shifting, like Greg O'Shea, James Kavanagh and Justine Stafford. Oh, tonsil tennis. No, we're, we're sticking with shift. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. So what's your take on classism in prisons? Because there is an overwhelming majority of working class people in prison. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with you. I, I, uh, and again, this is Eddie talking. This is not the prison service talking. I do think my own experience over thirty years is that is there's a much, much, much disproportionate number of people from marginalised communities in prison. There's no question about it. Um, and I'll be, I'll be controversial and say in some cases. Uh, people from privileged backgrounds can afford the best legal representation. I'm not saying that the the, the the legal system is is corrupt in any way. I think we have a good legal system by and large, but I do believe they pay for the best representation. Well, yeah, you know, and and I mean, you're not paying for the best for no reason. So yeah. I do think, yeah. uh, and I do now. Having said that, I have seen people come from middle class backgrounds and 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 wealthy backgrounds, and. You know, I've seen them in prison. Not as certainly not as many as as uh, people from uh, working class backgrounds, but the impact is is, is as stressful on them. In fact, I, I think we were saying to you earlier, Calvin, from our point of view, it's even more difficult to manage somebody who comes from a privileged background because the the level of fear, the level of intimidation that they may be subject to is far greater than somebody who comes in and very often a guy come in and you'd, we, we do what's known as a committal process so we'll meet the guy the next morning so it'll be a governor we'll meet him with a chief come in and go through there's a kind of a standard form we'll go through in terms of family where he's in uh, is he appealing the sentence there's any particular issues he wants to raise with us you know is he struggling with mental health issues is he struggling with drug addiction and do you know anybody in prison and very often the lad will say yeah I know Calvin up on D3 uh, I'll go up to him I'll be, I'll be happy there 
I'll be safe there, I'll be comfortable there. So there is a support network for people because more people from working class backgrounds are in prison than there is for somebody from the privileged background, right? Um, that's not a justification, by the way, for people from working class going in and not from privileged background. But as I said to you, I think... If you, if, if, I don't have a statistic on this. I do, I've, I read it somewhere, but I can't just think of it at the moment, where if you, for example, look at the reason a person engaged in criminal activity in the first place, because maybe to support an addiction, right? So they shoplift or they're stole or whatever it might be. So the person from the, the middle class background doesn't have to resort to that mm. to support their drug addiction so they don't come to the attention of the law. Now, I know I've said that already, too, but that is a, that's a fairly big factor in terms of differentiating who ends up in prison. Definitely. Mm. That's why classism, definitely classism, there's no question about it, but the people from the middle and upper class areas will now be like, oh, well, you was doing that. I have a point to make there, actually, Go because on. you're talking about they don't face that. Um, the the minor the poverty, petty crime, uh, yeah, and, that that comes with yeah. petty crimes yeah. though. So when they do come before the judge, then because the petty crime is real, though, it'd be far more severe crime. So the fact that they then don't go to the prison service from that should tell you those classism there, because you're you're ruling out uh, social economic factors there at the bottom, saying well. Someone from an affluent area is not going to suffer from well, heroin again, it's addiction. Not everybody, yeah. right? But, so yeah. they won't shoplift. So that's already gone. So then, why are they in court? Oh well, then it must be for a more severe reason. Mm. Well, I don't know. Let's say it was uh, you got caught in possession of a, a high quantity amount of drugs. Yeah, if someone from the northeast in a city, and let's say somebody from I don't know, Port Marnock, think of a leapy suburb, Port Marnock, take a pick. They both come before a judge with that kind of charge. You know what I mean? You don't need me to fill in the blanks there. No, you know, like it would be wrong for me to comment because the the the, the whole integrity of the court system and and mm. and, and it's it, you know by and large we have a uh, a fair judicial system. I think, right? Others would disagree, but I think we have. But I but there's no doubt about it. what you're saying. Is there there is there is a, and there's another thing. Another factor is the frequency a person comes in. So sometimes you could have been up in in front of a judge once for a serious offence, but because you haven't been up before. The judge will take that into account. So you know, the barrister will say, "Well, you know, my client has had a, you know, an impeccable record. Yeah. He's never been in front of you before." And then that forms the narrative for the sentence. And this is my view again. Yeah. I'm not speaking on behalf of judges, but that forms the narrative for giving well, the sentence. Where somebody does. with 100 convictions say, "Well, yeah. hold on, this fellow hasn't learned his lesson," mm. and he ends up in prison. You well, know? Of course, it does. That's why the barrister gets up and says. So that's another observation I made in court was. The barrister got up and spoke on behalf of every single person there. This woman has torn her life around, she's doing this, this fella's done that. And I said to me, missus as well, I was like, and that mad, isn't that every single person before the judge here today is a good person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's the problem then? Yeah, but you know, if you think about it, I'm going to be real PC and say there's probably is good in everybody, of right? Of course there's. Uh, and, and the thing about it is, but you'll find that, uh, uh, particularly if you come across somebody who has been in and out of the system mm. a lot. So the judge might know the person but's familiar with them, looking at the the, the previous charges, whatever it might be, and uh, and then the barrister is looking at look, I have to find something here. Yeah. Something mitigates against this fella going down for a long sentence. And they will mm. talk about, you know, engaging with cool mine or whatever the, whoever the service provider is and they're doing this, that and the other. And that's why you'll find that that's it's repeated over yeah. and over again. In I was, what I was saying is like yeah. of course it's good and everybody everyone has to write a fair trial and I'm, I'm strong belief on that I'm just saying it was so repetitive you know what I mean Jesus every single person up here today is a good person yeah, and, yeah. Doing this and if they were all doing it there'd be no one there because yeah. they wouldn't be involved in half yeah. the activities yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah so that was just you said yourself how you manage people from how would you manage someone so let's say 
these two fellas that they're both caught in possession or whatever. They both face the judge. One is from Portmanic, one is from Sheriff Street, for example. But they both do get a sentence. How do you manage that? Uh, well, I suppose I, I can think of one particular case where a guy came in, two guys actually, both of them, uh, one guy from Tala, one guy from uh, Leafy Suburb, and uh, they uh, both on the same crime, both on the same offence, uh, both got similar sentences. But the guy from Tala, who had been in prison before, was... We'll call him an old an old hand at it, right? So he wasn't in any way concerned about his own safety. He wasn't concerned about uh, going up onto the landings with the other lads. He knew a few up there, so we knew that. I mean, that's not to say that he wouldn't be vulnerable, but we wouldn't. He knew he wouldn't be as vulnerable as the other guy around. Like. And the other guy we had to keep in what we call our sea base, which is one of the bases in the prison. He was a cleaner in that area. It was a protected environment, and he spent about six or eight months there in a really close, really uh, confined space until he was approved to go to an open centre. And then he went to an open centre. Um, and like the, 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 the prison service got a lot fairer in recent years in terms of the criteria for going for an open centre. I do think in the earlier years, yeah, if, if somebody from a middle class background, oh, get him off to, get him off to Shelton Abbey. He's, he's, you know, he's going to be a problem here. We have to look after him. And he got the benefits of an open centre mm. ahead of somebody who wasn't as uncomfortable in prison, which was an unfair reason to go to an open centre. But that has certainly changed in terms mm. of the decision-making around. Now, that's not to say that people do get to open centres ahead of others. And that as well is based on a risk. So if you look at somebody who, you know, is chronic in many ways and you say, well, if I send this fellow to an open centre, he's, it's because it's an open centre, mm. he can walk out the gate. He's going to walk out the gate. Then there are obviously negative, uh, there's a negative uh, PR spin around such and such yeah. the legs are from the prison or escapes even though it's not escapes because you're walking place, out yeah. right? whereas so, so there's a, there is a risk assessment there's a process to sending uh, people to open centres but there is also a perception that people who come from more affluent backgrounds get open centres quicker than people I don't personally think they do they did I don't think they do anymore. yeah well that's probably where the, the people management of being a governor yeah. comes in yeah. you have to say well look at what's best for the yeah. prison and, and the staff as an overall would Absolutely. be to ship this person yeah. out ASAP yeah. which is a bit it, it's a bit a mad one and a bit of a conundrum that it's because right both these people are here both from different classes in society but because a majority of the people in here sound like you we're going to shift the other fellow out quicker yeah. and you'll never ever shift the what would you say? You know, the majority will always be the majority working class because they'll never get a chance for it to even out. If that yeah. makes sense, it does it's make sense. And I, I am not going to deny that there, mm. you know that there is a there is a uh, you know even from a from a practical point of view, it is easier to deal with people who are not vulnerable, who are who can stick the course, who can do their sentence by and large, get on with it. Right, where somebody who is going to be you know, chronic in terms of, of uh, how they manage this or maybe might be um, might be in some way uh, intimidated, it is easier for us to move them on. But I don't think, I, I, I think it's, it, it happens few and far between. I really do, you know. But the other thing, and we have to say it is that uh, a person comes back to prison because they committed a crime back in the community, right? And they commit a crime back in the community because the services and the supports and be it, be not it is not there, right? Yeah. So if you want to stop somebody coming from prison, then society, and a big part of that, by the way, is actually welcoming people back in and not judging them. Or, 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 or like, Lynn Rand did a podcast there recently and I listened to them all. Obviously, I was in Weefield at the time. But one small little conversation she had with one of the prisoners was about forgiveness, right? And I thought he was talking about 
forgiveness from the people he had done the criminal behaviour but he was actually talking about forgiving himself right and he was saying he struggles every day to forgive himself for the torture he put his mother through right mm. and and he looks at his kids and he struggles to forgive himself and I said like I mean, that was that read that, the, of all the conversations she had that was the one thing like the amount of guilt that prisoners carry because they know that they have let people down They've, and especially the people that are near they don't not necessarily care about people they don't know or society but they certainly do care about the people that are nearest and dearest to them and the impact it's had on them and they really do and your man like, I, I, I'd advise you to listen to some of our podcasts we have, yeah. they're, they're really listen powerful aren't they yeah, and like this conversation and it struck me I said Jesus you know I never thought of that I never thought of the guilt that they carry. I often thought about, you know, you what know, they don't, what they did yeah. and what they and who should forgive them and should they be forgiven and should they feel a sense of forgiveness. He wasn't interested. In that. He was just interested in what he had done and how it had impacted him. So, like, I thought that was a pretty powerful conversation. There was a few, there was a few powerful things that I've heard, Jordan. Remember when we spoke about the the fellow who said that he'd rather be in prison. Yeah, because more support in prison. He's yeah. he loves music yeah. and he, he loves rapping and he gets to do that in there. And there's a there's a place for him to go to do yeah. that when he knows when he gets out of prison, he's not gonna have the money to go and do that. Or... So if you think about it, uh, like there's the amount of really good musicians that were discovered in prison. Now I don't mean they they're not they're not making a living out of it, but in term, in terms of either learn to play an instrument or were able to play and perfect it, mm. right? Now if you think of it they would have never gone to a guitar school mm. in the community yep. to learn, right? So they're in prison and they're used, and I think that's a good use use, uh, use of their time in prison, right? It's ne- it mightn't transform their life, but it gives them, like, I've seen guys, we're going to have an event there in two weeks' time, the, the uh, Johnny Cash, you've heard of Johnny Cash, I presume? Oh, that's it. So Johnny Cash would have been 90 this year, and uh, Johnny Cash did a lot of work in the States yeah. in prisons. Yeah. So... The American embassy contacted us and asked us, would we do, would our choir, which is a, we call it a prison choir, but they're really, they're just a g- good group of singers and the Solus singer, uh, choir record two of his songs. So they're going to stream them live. You might play it on your podcast, actually, if I send it down to you. But anyway, <laughs> they're going to stream this, uh, uh, they're going to release this, uh, um, uh, these two songs. They're two famous, one is Fulton Prison Blues of course there is yeah and the other one then is believe it or not is the 40 Shades of Green because seemingly he liked uh, Ireland when he came to Ireland so they're the two songs but the point I was going to make was when you listen to the lads both singing and playing the instruments and it's just like it's as good as any session anywhere you'd go to listen to music so things like that sport is another great one we talk about Philly McMahon like Mm. Philly comes into the prison Philly uh Says to you, he does meditation. He doesn't do meditation, but he does a bit of work. He does a good bit. Of, that, he does a good bit of work with the lads. But again, sports a great leveler. You know, like I, I, I don't know whether you are familiar. We have a thing called the park run. So you're talking about your run. So every Saturday morning, all over the world, there's a thing called the park run. It's a five kilometer run, and uh, it's it's run at half nine. No matter where you are, if you're if you're if you're a park runner, you have this little tag, right? You log it on. You log your time on your on mm. this website, and it you know you keep track of it. And we introduced the park run to Mount Joy about two years ago, a little over two years ago. It runs every Saturday morning. So prisoners and staff and people from the community. So we'd invite people in. So there's another one for you, lads. You can come in and do the park run, right? Mm-hmm. So they um, so they do this run every weekend. And we had our 100th park run about uh, two weeks ago. And I, I, I'm not a runner, but I said I'd win and do it. I was a runner, but I said I'd win and do it. So we, we did the run. And we had Lynn Rowan came in, our partner came in, he ran, Lynn couldn't, she was 
feigning an injury, but you know, <laughs> both but anyway, uh, Ray Darcy, the broadcaster, came in, he did. So there was a lot of people from the community and then people running clubs came in. And we all went upstairs to what we called the church for a, for a cup of tea and a, a, whatever, there was a few, few cakes and that kind of crack. And you'd never know, because everybody had a park run pr- uh, t-shirt yeah. on. Nobody knew was who was a prisoner, right? Yeah. Well, so it was obviously a security nightmare watching to see who was going out <laughs> and who wasn't going out. But you wouldn't know who the prisoner was, right? And it was all about the type of runners they were wearing. Do you find them good? Or, uh, you know, the time they're running. And it, there was no judgment, right? And there are certain things. Music is one. I think adult education is another where teachers, I, I, I mean, we phenomenal teachers in Mount Joy who work with lads and it isn't about what they've done, it's about what they can achieve or what they can do. Mm. And sport is the same. Like, you know, if you have a, a football team in, like even you know, we talk about the guards area, very often the guards will come in and play a group of prisoners in a game and now it's, it's, it's robust, right? It's yeah. robust. <laughs> but it's good and there's a bit of atmosphere and, and it shows people in a different light, you know? So there are certain areas where class, there's no boundaries over class I think sport is and Philly because of where he came from because of his experience he's able to talk and connect with, and it's about connection like if you talk with a with a, a sincerity and if you talk with a and I, I dare I say it, even an accent right that isn't condescending isn't talking down to people mm-hmm. you'll get a much better reaction like Lynn is another one like Lynn ta- says it as it is she doesn't dress it up exactly and she has a huge connection with prisoners and that's right so so and again bringing people into the community into Mount because it isn't a secret society so the more people we can bring in like mm-hmm. when you're going to do your live show that we talked about earlier <laughs> the more people you can bring in the more they see that these people are normal they've made a mistake you know but uh, and some of them have made several mistakes and some of them are really serious mistakes and no, wouldn't underestimate any of that but, but like, more people can bring in humanise exactly and normalise it you know like the run is a great example like it's seven and a half laps of the prison right and and it's just for that seven and a half laps it's just it's competition. It's, you know, prisoners want to be other prisoners. It's human nature. Yeah. It's just great. It's great. Normality. That's what I was going to say. That park run is one of the best ideas I've ever heard yeah. for something brilliant. like that. It's brilliant. And yeah. were, you, were you saying that the prisoners then get to go up and have the couple of Oh, yeah. Of so we all, well. after every park run, so there is uh, half an hour where when people cooling down or wherever they go and have it just pump action, flask of tea, a few biscuits and a chat and people talk about it. And how frequent is the park run? Every Saturday. So, so I'm, I'd imagine you nearly have the whole fucking prison doing it. Well, the, well no, see, unfortunately, no, Terence, we have to be. It is a prison. <laughs> <laughs> so what, it's, a so prison. it's a selection of... Well, it is, it is. But so. it's, I mean, a high demand. You have oh, to, yeah. You have to so, run 5K under 25 minutes to qualify. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah, the, the great thing I mean. about the park run, because I did it in 27 minutes, so it was very slow, right? But there's always a back so marker. Slow. That's oh, easy no, going. slow. I'm yeah, telling lawyers... Once you run 5K, it's really torty minutes. I'm telling lawyers... But there's always a back marker, right? So you're never lost, right? So even... Like I can remember one particular prisoner, I won't describe him because, you know, he'd be identifiable, but he was a very heavy guy, right? And chaotic, like a true drug use, big man, really, really chaotic. I'll tell you two stories of him real quickly. He uh, he went up to what's known as the Progression Unit, which is a particular part of Mount Joy where people were getting on well. He went up there, he'd been chaotic in the main prison. Started to work with Philly, right? Getting on really well with Philly. And uh, started to do the park run. And the change in him. And I remember we brought in uh, a couple of coaches from the GEA. Croke Park are very good and very supportive about, about people who are, you know, struggling in prison. And they'd always put a few bit of funding into initiatives and that kind of stuff. They funded Philly for a while as well. So when we brought... Uh, so they came in to do a coaching course with, uh, with, the, uh, with some of the lads. And this particular prisoner did the coaching course. No kids of his own, but he had a nephew, right? And 
uh, FM 104, one of the radio stations, came in to do an interview and talked. And they, and they interviewed him, right? And, like, he was so articulate, right? He just, the, this guy was clued in what he wanted to do, but he was talking about, this, he said, you know, I wouldn't even go to an underage gang match because... I was so out, I was so out, out, first of all, out of it, but also out of touch. Now he says, I'm gone and I'm telling him where he needs to, uh, you know, what position he needs to be in or, you know, he needs to be in front of his man, whatever it is. He knew all the terms, he knew it all. And he had changed, that, that had changed his relationship with his nephew, who, you know, you can imagine, like he, this fellow was in his 20s. Relationship with 20 year old lads and nephews is not, you know, it's not a particularly dynamic relationship anyway. But he had something in common with him. And your man was mad about Gah. So he was able to, at least for that game, have a conversation with him and mm. feel as if he was part of the community. Yeah. And that's why I think, you know, community plays a huge role in how a person can come out of prison and reintegrate and, and, and hopefully not go back to prison. But people will go back to prison. All the time they go back to prison. And it's about giving them another chance and another chance. You seem to be very progressive when it comes to like prison and you seem to be more focused on the fact that they're not prisoners. What they it's people man management here. Like you said it when you come in, uh, we were asking why you're a cop, and you were like, "No, I'm a chef." But like, <laughs> what example I was going to give you? I often find out like if you look up organisations around the world and you look up the CEO and you look up the CEO's background, it's often something completely different. To like, you'll see like the CEO of like a car company was once a bleeding painter or something like that, and walked away, and you're like, "Geez, that doesn't really add up," you know. But that is very good at identifying systems and the flaws and managing the, the components of that system. So the components in your system is the, prison, is the prisoners and the staff mm. and how they need to have a harmony between them. So how do, you, how do you kick this off? So what do you do when you're presented with someone on the first day for a sentence? Okay, so as, as I said to you, when, when a person comes in for the first day, and I'll be honest with you, most people that come into prison, most of them have been in before, okay? So now you're going to say there was always one first day. So the person that on their first day comes in, it is about trying to build up a bit of a relationship, a bit of rapport with them, reassuring them. Like it is a traumatic experience, first time going into prison. You come in in a van, okay, so you're in a little cell in the van. You're taken out of the van, you'll be met by, with a nurse, first of all. Now at the moment, the nurse will meet you and ask you any health issues, talk about COVID. So uh, then you'll be brought into reception, you'll give all your problems property in which you take a shower it's very structured it's very daunting it's not very personal right sometimes uh, in fairness our reception staff because they're so long at it can spot somebody who's very uncomfortable or who's very feels very vulnerable or very uh, uh, we say intimidated and they'll usually try and reassure them say look it's not as bad as it seems not as a steer so it is a really traumatic first time first time experience is very traumatic coming in you don't know what to expect there's a lot of noise right the prison is especially if it's an unlocked period you'll hear all this activity going on over your head and you wonder what the hell am I letting myself in for so it is a dawn Thing. You go to what's known as a committal unit, right? A committal unit is where every prisoner will spend the first night. Okay? The idea is that they will see a doctor, they will see uh, uh, a governor, they'll see the chaplain will come down and talk to them and say, look, do you need, do you need me to contact your mother, your partner, your children, whatever it is. So all that happens in the first 24-hour period. And that kind of gives us an opportunity then to see if there's any issues. Like, for example... One of the things, like tonight there'll be about 100 staff on in our, in our prisons and there'll be about 12 nurses and they'll be going around and I always say they'll, they'll check on for security. So the staff will be checking to make sure that the doors are secure, that the bars are secure and that people are going nowhere. But the majority they check is checking on people who are vulnerable, right? And, you know, I mean, there isn't a night goes by where 
the intervention of a staff member saves somebody's life. So somebody is at that rock bottom period in their life. They come into prison, they can see no hope and their, 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 their way out is suicide, right? And like we have so many people who have been um, just that intervention and it mightn't even be a physical one. It might be just lifting up the flap and saying, okay, and having a conversation for 30 seconds or 40 seconds until that particular thought passes by and then and you might even say something like your mother, how's your mother or would you get a visit today or whatever it might be and they're the kind of that's the important thing about staff right uh, yeah there is there are always uh, disagreements between staff and prisoners but and we're good as a, a nation I think about talking and it's yeah. that conversation that can save somebody and that happens I'm telling you lads so many times throughout the year that conversation or a nurse going in somebody who self-harms and a nurse going in you know maybe putting bandages on the person and talking to them and saying look it's not that bad you'll get through this and just and it's not it's not any uh, we'll say um, particular training it's just having a bit of empathy and showing a little bit of understanding for somebody who's humanising humanising and I do think we're good at that and like as as a prison service we are absolutely not perfect. There's loads of things. There's loads of learnings. Services of prisoners need to improve. All of that. Relationships need to improve. There's so much. But if you look at where, I think, where we were 30 years ago and look at where we are today, we're going in the right direction, you know. Is there any countries you look at and you wish the prison service was like that? Or do you think Ireland's? Yeah, no, no, yeah. The, the, the statistics will say that the likes of Norway, Denmark, Sweden, are the mo- yeah, they're there. the most progressive. To the degree, they're the best for every system in the world. They are. They I seem think, to perfect yeah. every system, like health education, services, health. health. Yeah, I agree. Everything. With you. But they are the role models, right? But like, we, we're by no means uh, uh, bottom of the league or bottom of the table in terms of the services we provide. Mm. I mean, even like you look at the facilities in prisons. When I joined the prison service, most of our prisons had slopping out, so you yeah. had to book it in your cell, right? That's almost gone, right? There, 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 there's a little bit of it in Port Leash, and there are political issues around that. And then there is a small bit in Limerick, which will be eliminated towards the end of the year because we built a new wing in, in, in Limerick, right? So facilities have improved. Uh, there's still pockets of areas where we'd like to improve in terms of facilities for, for, for people in prison, but by and large, it's dramatically changed on what it was. 20 years ago. Well, uh, we talked about Yeah, so now. this is what I wanted to touch on as well. So, uh, you know Will Willow very well. Uh, Do you know, believe it, I never met him. I never met Will Willow. You've never met him? No, 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 no. Why did you think you know? No, I, I, about no I know him from his media and what he's done. Oh, right. he's never actually before fit. we come on. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We thought you knew him. No, no, no. Will I has a play on the, that's yeah. running at the moment called The Examination. It's actually over in Paris for it now. It's Unbelievable! It only goes on for an hour, and I swear to God, it's the quickest hour of your life. Uh, I don't know. Ten minutes in, turns me new tears in her eyes. How fuck? It's oh, tears in her eyes. We were legit crying. Yeah. <laughs> I was crying. I was trying to hide it because yeah, it was dark. So I was like, oh, no one will notice. Right. It's the most minimal set I've ever seen for a play. It's literally mm. like a table and then a little kind of small step for a stage. Mm. And how powerful there is two men on the stage delivering the story yeah. from. The institution side, like how society perceives what a prisoner is and how all these like philosophers throughout history deemed what a criminal is. And like they touch on stuff which is very, very fucking powerful. Like there was a, I think it was a philosopher in like the 19th century deemed criminality as a generational thing. It's just, it's bred into you. Like you're born a criminal and criminals have certain features and all. And I think like people actually thought this way not even 200 years ago. That's scary. And then well, that gives it from the, the prisoner side, like, this is not a fucking holiday camp. Yeah. This is the suffering we go through. And then they go back and forth a bit. Very, very good. They go back and forth a bit. 
and then Willa makes a very, very, like, one of the most powerful things that I took from it was everybody is one action away from being a, a criminal. And I was like, Jesus Christ, like, that really hit home. Like, if you drive a car, you know exactly where I'm coming from, you know what I mean? No, Someone right, puts yeah. out in front of you, ah, oh, yeah, fuck, and you, yeah. you have that little moment of anger. Anything, somebody could bump into you on the street or someone can say something to you, anything could happen to you. That one moment, and that's it. And that's, a, that. like, there's a lot of people in the prison system who have had that one moment. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of recidivism too, but there's a lot of people who've had that one moment and are paying a huge price. Now, as, I, as we said earlier, there's a price that other people are paying as a result of as well. But you're right, we are all only one step away from something going catastrophically wrong in our lives and ends, and we end up in prison or whatever. There's no mm. doubt about it, you know? But if you get a chance, it's called the examination. We might try and get him to bring it in. We usually get people to bring in. But I'd say he would bring it in. Would be. He definitely will. Reach out to him. Yeah, He's will. doing a national tour the next year. It's, I swear to God, it's one of the most powerful pieces yeah. of media you'll ever experience. It's definitely Sounds the best it, thing yeah. I ever went to, ever. Like, I could not believe it. You have every emotion, Jordan. Don't yeah. you? And that's, but that, that, it's funny you said you cried because that is prison, right? Like, you know, there's, you know, when you put a group of lads together, there's a lot of testosterone, there's a lot of aggression. Yeah. Individually, they're struggling with so many demons, right? And when you get to have a conversation and you break down any barriers that are there, the honesty that comes out, you know, and the, and the emotion that comes out. And, you know, you can get that. And the same, an hour later, the same fella give you a punch, by the way, if he was in company and mm. and he was provoked, you know. So that's the that's the kind of raw emotion. Like, you know, male and female prisoners are so much different, right? Because female prisoners, first of all, I think in, in many cases, their lives are even more chaotic because... It, uh, the judicial system are slow to send women to prison slower than they are to send men right I think the difference is women are more in tune with their emotions and they're more they will they will articulate the problems they have lads bottle it up right now it's getting better so people will tell you for example I'm feeling suicidal or whatever it is and when you get that trigger and, and you know then you can start to, to deal and sometimes you're dealing with in a way where they don't want you they might have to say look I'm, I'm going to put you in a special cell for the night they don't want to go into a special cell for the night but while we've concerns about their their physical well-being that's our only tool we don't use it as a punishment so it isn't about punishing somebody but it's about getting over that particular uh, period in, in their sentence but yeah you're right it's a very emotional place to be like, two more things. because of the slopping out stuff yeah no go on about the slopping out <laughs> so that's where he goes into statistics and breaks it down the slopping out like and how many like it goes year by year when it began to change the percentage of it in Irish prisons yeah. how many prisoners use it and he goes into detail about what slopping out actually is you have a bucket in your cell every morning you have to empty it out but he was saying how the landings are structured Yeah. so like if you're at the end of the landing and you're close to the slopping out everyone has to carry that pissy bucket past your cell and, and do you know lads uh, Will was right of course he's talking about prisoners but staff had to stand there right so I would stand I remember as a recruit standing at the bottom of the landing right because areas where there could be contention right Just showers, toilets, right? the toilets were at the end of each landing. So you'd stand there and there'd be a parade of prisoners coming down with a bucket and they'd be emptying it. And like, you know, it's the contents of your own bucket is bad, but somebody else's bucket is it's even worse, worse yeah. you know? So you had to, so it was a horrible place for everybody. It wasn't just a horrible place for mm. prisoners. It was a horrible place for staff. Mountjoy, for example, years ago was grossly overcrowded, right? With two and three in a cell uh, and they use, and slopping out. And that is, uh, like, I mean, that, there's a legacy issue there and people are traumatised by that. I think the state is trying to, to to pay some reparation to people who have had to endure slopping out. I understand there's a debate about, like, it's a really, really, really topical debate when you say you're 
compensating a prisoner mm. for slopping out and you have certain sections of society, well, you know, we're actually paying them now. They were in mm. prison and we're paying them as well. So there are people who will say that as well. But it was a horrible period, you know, and thankfully it's one of those periods where we're almost at the back of it, you know. Yeah, that, but that's the thing. We're almost at the back of it. We still have prisoners pissing in buckets and pouring yeah. them out on a landing somewhere in Ireland. Yeah, it's yeah. madness to think. Oh, oh, look, I'm not. I'm not justifying it in any way. I know. Yeah, but no, but yeah. given that, uh, like, there's been a lot of investment. Prisons don't resemble what they look like. There's been a lot of investment. You have to start somewhere and finish somewhere. Yeah. We're almost at that. But you're right, of mm. course. 20, 2022, people using a bucket you know, to use as a toilet is not acceptable. It never was and it continues not to be acceptable. Mm. But it isn't the problem it was. That's all it's Yeah. Well, I have two more things to touch on before we wrap up. If you want else. No, I'm fresh. Uh, yeah, you seem to be very, like, you look past what's going on. You look at the person when they come to you. Is it very hard to look past the crime they've committed or the sentence that they're carrying when you, you know, meet somebody? Do you know it's funny if I if I'm reading something right if there's a if there's a court case going on now right a murder trial whatever it might be and you're getting the details uh, reported on the news right and you're saying God that's horrific you know absolutely you look at the and you or for example you hear of a victim impact statement or you see on the steps of the court you'll see you know somebody who's been the victim of a horrendous crime and your heart goes out and there's no doubt about it and you say God that's shocking and I know then the following morning I might meet that person who's been convicted who's been sentenced to a life sentence or whatever it is and you go in and I don't know what I, I don't I've never consciously done it but I've always managed to go in with a completely dispassionate view and sit down uh, I might think afterwards I say Jesus I didn't like your man your man's mm. not a bit remorseful that's just human nature but I've always always been able to sit down and take the details talk to the person like I would talk to anybody else uh, and go through the process right do I have particular uh, emotional thoughts on it? of course I mean you wouldn't be human if you didn't think of 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 a particular um, of a particular crime and how heinous it might be or whatever yeah but you have to get by it because the only person that'll struggle on that is you right because the, it do, you don't change the fact that the person's serving a sentence but you're going home thinking about it and you're mm. so I, I'm not I, I, I don't know whether it just happened over time but it's certainly not something that that uh, impacts me I'm more likely to have an opinion while the trial is going on and you're listening to the evidence that's presented and you're saying you know this and that and the other but when they come in now kind of and I think most of my colleagues would be the same they kind of just say you know it is this, we, we go through this process and you see people then doing sentences and, you know, and like, like particularly life sentence, you're seeing the same person. You might move prison or they might move prison, but you'll always come across them again. You'll see them maturing, you'll see their whole behaviour changing, their thought process changes, you know, their hope changes, you know. You know, there's so many things that changes about them and very often, uh, and there's one thing I'd like to say because people always think when they talk about life sentence prisoners and they, they think about, you know, how long should life be or, you know, life should be life is always mm. a phrase you'll hear people saying and particularly in certain sections of the media. First of all, life is life. Okay, when you get life sentence, you're serving a life sentence. Mm. The, the, the issue is whether you serve the sentence in prison yeah. or whether you serve on license in the community, right? Yeah. And there's no, uh, there's no, uh, at the moment and, and there's conver there's conversations in, in political circles about a, a determinate sentence so a minimum sentence so but at the moment a life sentence there is no minimum that you must serve there's no maximum that you must serve and it is always based on engagement and level of risk okay now you can never with 100% uh, predict the risk associated with any one person right? but you can look at their engagement the work they've done you can look at the family support you can look at all the back all the little factors that contribute to making them 
uh, having the best chance when they go back into society. So decisions, because people think that, you often hear, you'll read in one of the papers the <coughs> weekend, you'll see that uh, Calvin got out after 18 years, right, for good behaviour. Mm. Nobody gets out for good behaviour. People get out after a period of a sentence based on the risk the engagement they've done, the work they've done, if it's psychology, if it's if it's addiction, if it's a skill, if it's education, all those factors feed into a decision-making process which says, okay, we will release this guy on licence, which is under the supervision of the probation service, so they have a probation officer who will, in the first year, two years, three years, whatever it is, have really, really close contact, regular contact, but like everybody else, as people reintegrate back into society, you have to allow them reintegrate, so you can't keep reminding them by knocking on the door and saying you're under supervision. So the supervision gradually reduces. It never goes away, but gradually reduces. Mm. But life is life, lads. It's it's it is life. It is the the emotional question is how much of it should be in prison and how much of it should be in in the. And you're community. saying there's no minimum for in prison. There's no minimum term for life sentence. What's the least someone has done that you know what? Well, I remember when I joined the prison service, it wasn't uncommon for somebody getting a life sentence to be released after 10 years, right? So you could go to the parole system, you could do 10 years, right? It's not uncommon now for somebody to do 20 years. It's not necessary, but it isn't uncommon mm. for a life sentence to be up around the 20 years and longer, by the way, and in some cases a little bit less, but it certainly has become a longer custodial sentence than it was when I joined the prison yeah. service. Yeah, so you, are you, you're obviously more in favour of the life is life, but not life incarceration. So what I'm in favour of is that we explain to people that this a is person it. is always doing life, right? And yeah, there's no doubt about it. Because the longer a person spends in prison, right, the, the more people they lose in the community. So they lose family, right? So if we make a decision when a guy is 70 years of age to release him, right, yeah. where's he going to go? Yeah. He's going to go into a state-run service because he has no family, he has no relationship, he's no nieces, nephews, brothers, whatever, they're all gone and he's left a lonely man or woman for the remaining 10 years. Now, people will be screaming saying, well, life is life and I agree with you and, I, I, and I'm absolutely not saying that anybody has to accept Eddie Mullins' opinion on life but my own experience would be that the longer people spend in prison it's much, much harder for them then to live any sort of a life outside. And I will qualify that by saying, I know in many cases, the person that the victim didn't get a chance to live a life, I know that, yeah. right? But I don't want to be flippant, but two wrongs don't necessarily make it right. And you're saying life is life, yeah. regardless. Yeah. It's like that, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth will leave us all mumbling and maligned, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? So lads, I'm going to need you to get a job off you now because I'm going to be sacked after all. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be a good podcast host. We'll take you in. And then my last one before I yeah. finish up, Eddie, because we have you over here bleeding down all the time. But if there's one thing you could change with the Irish prison system, what would it be? That's a really good question. That's a fucking So there's a couple of there's a couple of things I would do and I, I was asked that recently, so that's why I'm, I'm kind of fresh in my mind about it. I would build more prisons and I'd put less people in them, right? So I, I would say I would have more open centres. I would have smaller prisons, right? So even though we do a, a, a lot of work to try and segregate people who can't get on with each other, and there's, we're all very familiar with the, with the criminal feud system that's going on in the community at the moment, and a lot of those people are in prison, and so there's that, that whole uh, gangland culture that goes on, and it's, it's always been there, by the way. You know, gangland is not new. Gangland was there. It might be more sophisticated now, but it was always there. I remember as a kid, there were particular gangs known in Dublin who had control over particular criminality at the time, so it's, it's not a new phenomenon. It is more sophisticated. But 
if you have smaller prisons, you can focus the, the resources on the people. So, for example, somebody who comes in for with a, with a particular drug a drug addiction, right? Not not a not a violent criminal act or whatever it might be can end up and does end up beside somebody who has shot somebody in the same prison. And if they can get on with each other, there's no issue. We, we, we work on. Whereas if you can target people, our rehabilitation, which is the wrong word, will be more impactful, I think. So I'd build more prisons, but I'd have them smaller. And I put I would certainly look at alternatives to prison in every in every aspect, but certainly for short sentences because they're absolutely pointless. So there would be the two things I would do um, if I was the Minister for Justice, which is not going to happen. Because mm-hmm. there are two things that make a lot of sense. The minor sentences so. one. The minor it's, sentences one's a no-brainer to me. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely stupid. And then the, how much smaller in terms of capacity? Would you go half the capacity of Mountjoy? Oh, no. Mountjoy's far too big, right? So I'm talking about prisons that have no more than 100, 120 prisoners in them. Open mm. centres. I mean, there was a question to me recently about, we'd say, uh, uh, conjugal rights. Okay, so... Uh, now, I, I, I kind of sidestepped it because my, <laughs> my answer would be, well, if you want to really make it about uh, relationships, then it should be... Family, it's not just conjugal rights, it yeah. should be kids and all that. So, I thought that was a clever Is that a thing in Ireland? I thought, no. I, no, no, it's not. I only ever see it on the telly, like in America. No, no it's not a thing. It's it's not. It. No, it's not. No, no, we're not going to go there. That's, <laughs> <laughs> I'll definitely be saying that. That's No, but no, it, I'll just say it's, it's not a, a thing in Ireland. Well, it's, it's no, it's not. No, it's right, not. No, right, no, right, no, right. I, no I, I do know. I was in an open center. He's getting nervous. I do know of instances where we've come across couples in compromising positions in open prisons, right? Yeah. That's human nature. But yeah. as an organisation, we don't provide facilities for that to happen. For conjugal visits yeah. or conjugal rights. Don't give yeah. them a mobile out the yeah. back or something. Mo- we're not going to, Jesus lads, we'll be here for another two hours. We talk about mobile phones. We're not going to. No, gonna, I meant the mobile home. mobile home. No, yeah. no, no, no. No, we don't. No, but look, it, it, it is a conversation. It is in other more advanced um, uh, criminal justice systems. There is a, a big element of conjugal and family visits, right? And family uh, units where the family can come in and it's about, particularly if you're doing, if you're talking about somebody who's saying a really long sentence, it's about normalisation, it's about getting used to that before you throw them out the gate to this real big bad world. So it's about acclimatisation, is that the word? So there's an argument for it. But to be honest with you, there's so many other problems in our system that that's, if I was to hierarchy, that wouldn't be yeah. high up on it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. We need a part two after this. Yeah. We hey, come back in those when you're retired. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that would be the dirty one, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we went into the details about mobile phones. Yeah. <laughs> right, we wrap this one up. I think that's a wrap, yeah? Right. Eddie, uh, thanks for coming honestly, in. Honestly, we know you're a busy man. man. So this is the one that was supposed to be last week. And well, what happened, lads? I fucked it. I didn't know Eddie. Well, no, as Eddie I said, was at me. I, I bottled the two. If it's, if it's <laughs> well, let's be honest about it. I mean, I have to be honest with you, lads. I was, I wasn't as nervous getting married, right? <laughs> I walked over from uh, Mount Joy this afternoon. And I said, "Jeez, I can't take my jacket off because the sweat pools under me arms." <laughs> so I'll have to say thanks very much because it hasn't been as bad as I thought. And I was waiting on the question on pissing in the shower, and I had to rehearse oh, it, but it's too late now. No, it's oh, over now, lads. So my answer was, lads. I said, at my age with my prostate, I'm lucky if I get to the shower. That was <laughs> He's <laughs> got more prepared for this than we no, were. you were, yeah. What's the saying? You know, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. fail so, yeah, there we go. Lads. Fair play, Teddy. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what? We might own a favour now with this. We might have to return the favour. You'll have to, lads. And I tell you, go down a bomb. And it's just about a conversation. We've seen it in there. You'd enjoy it. Uh, and there's nothing, there isn't a more challenging audience than a group of lads, and particularly prisoners. So, 
think about it. No, we'd, we'd be delighted. We'd to have definitely you. going. We'd to be delighted it. to have you up. Mm. Do you know what we'll do? We'll do the park run in the morning. Yeah, and then the podcast in the evening. Honestly, there you go. I'll tell you what. Let's do the park run, and then just do a half an hour with the lads that's on the park run. Sit down with them, cup of tea, and a conversation. And that'll be the, that, that. We'll see how it goes from there. Right, not this Saturday. Ah, you're but, looking. No, my knee's in a jocker. Next Saturday. Next but Saturday. But he did an extra 16 miles, yeah. did you? Or 12 miles, whatever. <laughs> What's the story? No, he's like, <laughs> his own board keeps saying it. His own board keeps saying it to me. Oh. <laughs> right, wrap this one up. Yep. Take us out, Chris. Boom. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. What you waiting for? What you back in The hip knocker. Go down, go down, go down.